0: How's it going everybody? This is Chris Welcome to a milestone episode This is the 25th installment of the Essential X-Lapsed Where well, we're going to pick up with our big cliffhanger from last issue and episode uh, We've got the return of Magneto And we'll find out all about how he came back And uh, what his plans are here in this very episode Let's hop right in This is X-Men number 18 at a March 1966 cover date The story is called, If Iceman Should Fail, dash dash. And um, you remember how we had that one guy in the letters page not too long ago saying, you know, I'm going to boycott Marvel with the mosquitoes until you say something nice about uh, Artie Simek. Remember that? you also remember how Stan is a little bit reactionary. Well, yeah, uh, that is really illustrated here in our credits here because we get a fair story by Stan Lee. Adequate Pencils, by Werner Roth, as Jay Gavin. Tolerable Inking, by Dick Ayers. And the World's Greatest Lettering, by Artie Simek. So, uh, Stan's given, a, he's throwing a bone to whoever that was that wrote that letter. Uh, it's also worth noting we have Uncredited Coloring, by Uncredited. Cover price, 12 cents. Let's hop right in. We open with the X-Men, Sans Iceman, plus Professor X floating away inside that steel gondola attached to the hot air balloon, and uh, they're all kind of knocked out. Down below, Magneto shakes his fists at his foes as they soar to their doom, before turning his attention to the mansion itself. He decides to lift it out of the ground with his matchless magnetic power, and just before he slams it back down to the ground, smashing it into many, many pieces, he realizes what delicious irony it would be if he just took up residency there. So, uh... He sets it down gently and proceeds to move on in. Now, Stan offers us a footnote suggesting that we all probably want to know how Mag's managed to escape the stranger, and he promises to fill us in on that ASAP. But first, Magneto's got to foom up the Cerebro machine. And uh, he does so by melting it? Okay. Uh, In any event, Magneto is then taken surprise by a ringing at the doorbell. And it's... The Worthingtons, Warren II, and his wife, What's Her Face. Now, this brings us right up to where we left things off last issue. Now, it might be worth noting here that uh, Werner Roth draws him an ugly Magneto. And I mean, of course, mileage may vary on art, but I find him quite unpleasant to look at. Anyway, the Worthingtons are here and they want to see their boy. And so Magneto uses his magnetic mental attraction on them to cause them to get really, really sleepy, and they retire upstairs to a waiting bedroom. Our baddie then dramatically poses, all but certain that everything is going his way, and the only thing left between him and certain victory is taking out Iceman, who, I might remind you, is not only the youngest X-Man at only 16 years old, but also the weakest. So speaking of Bobby, let's head over to the hospital and check in on our boy. Now the doc is about to inject him with that experimental sulfa medication and is doing so via a laser-induced hypodermic, which is to say a damned gun. He blasts Bobby in the shoulder, which either silences Bobby's delirium as he's no longer mumbling to himself, or just plain kills him since he's no longer mumbling to himself. I guess we'll find out soon. Back to the balloon. Professor X struggles as he's still got that mental wave distorter attached to his dome. And over the course of three very ugly panels The prof is able to summon enough residual mental power To kabak the thing to bits He then wakes up Jean and Hank Informing them both that they're not injured It's like, hey guys, you're not injured, wake up So that's all it takes Now Jean's first words are Magneto's alive To which Xavier asks her to tell him something he doesn't already know Charles then tells Gene and Hank to wake Scott and Warren Why he needed them to do this I couldn't tell ya It's not like they did anything special, they just shook them both awake. He could have probably done that himself. Uh, Gene asks how Magneto could have possibly escaped the awesome stranger. And Xavier says they'll worry about that a little bit later on, and indeed, they will. Back to the mansion. Magneto sets his diabolical plan in motion. He magnetically disassembles Xavier's lab, and then reassembles the bits and bobs in a more usable way for him. You see, what he's planning on doing is scanning the Worthingtons to analyze their mutant-producing body cells. And he'll duplicate them and start his own black market clone farm. And so he proceeds to scan the Richies while creepily leering into the bedroom window. And by bedroom window, I don't mean a window to the outside. It's just a window from the lab into the bedroom. So, uh, we could probably guess that this is Gene's room regularly, since, uh... We probably have a peeper or two in the uh, mansion Anyway, it might be worth noting that the Warringtons are sleeping in separate beds Which might make you wonder how they managed to procreate a single mutant Much less an army of dupes Back to the balloon The kids are fretting over the rapidly dissipating oxygen in the gondola And Xavier tells them all to shut up so he can think He touches his temples and is able to deduce that Magneto has the Worthingtons captured at the mansion Warren, as you might imagine, is uh, pretty freaked out And of course, Xavier tells him to shut up So he can think as well Chuck decides to try to send a psychic call to Iceman And well, what do you know It actually does the trick Bobby wakes up And equipped with all the information about what's going down He ice-slides all the way back to the mansion I probably shouldn't even mention That last issue it took Charles and Scott an hour To get home driving at breakneck speed So, means it probably took Iceman quite a bit longer to get home But, uh, nah, we won't even bother Anyway While the X-Men wait for something to happen, Professor X decides it's time to tell a story. You know, in an enclosed space that is rapidly being deprived of oxygen, why not run your mouth a bit? That sounds logical. So it's here where we're going to find out exactly how Magneto managed to escape the Stranger. You see, Magneto and Toad were basically just plopped down on a planet while the Stranger went off to explore other galaxies. And they've been alone here for months, with the ability to roam free since... I mean, there's little threat that they're going to ever get away. Here's the thing, though. The stranger just so happened to keep a spaceship graveyard on this very same planet. And so, Magneto uses his hoodoo to reactivate one of the rockets. Toad Giddily goes to follow his master inside, but is kicked on out of there. Magneto proceeds to blast off back to Earth, so a rollicking story, no? Anyway, after spilling the beans, Xavier tells the kids to shut up again so he can harness all of his mental energy in order to undergo the most difficult thought projection of his entire life. And without the Mento helmet to boot. By now, Bobby has arrived back at the mansion, so I guess we can assume that that story took about eight hours to tell. He notices that there's a light on at the lab, and assumes that that's where Magneto must be. And he crafts an ice ladder in order to peep on in. But he falls off, only managing to save himself by use of a frigid lasso he loops around the edge of the building. I, I don't know why we needed that, but... We got it. Inside, Magneto dramatically flips a switch, and this sets off a chain of events that begins to birth a bunch of Silver Age gold balls. And we got us a gaggle of Worthington clones about to be born. But then, the process slams to a halt. What could have possibly happened? Hmm. Well, we shift over to the Worthington bedroom to see that Bobby has concocted an ice shield over the folks, thus blocking the magnetic mutant machine's rays. Magneto pops his head back through the perv window and seethes. He then hurls a bunch of metal stuff at Iceman, who manages to whip up an ice shield just in the nick of time. He then uses his shield as a sled and then Bill Buckners himself right between Maggie's legs. Magneto rushes to follow, but slips on some ice. He proceeds to fall down some stairs into an ice cylinder, which leads into an igloo on the front lawn, where our baddie spins around a few times. Now, once he's able to regain his balance and composure, Magneto uses his magnetic powers to seal the igloo uh, Might want to have this ice tested uh, So he and Bobby are stuck inside the igloo And I gotta wonder, are we getting close to that scene where Iceman asks Magneto if he can wear his helmet? Like we saw in the uh, special on Main X-Lapsed? I mean, it's gotta be soon, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't lie to us Anyway, back to the balloon Professor X has come up with a plan He's got Cyclops there to fire an optic blast the size of a pinpoint to put a hole in the gondola and balloon in order to lower them back to Earth slowly. Then, when they're just a few feet above ground, Jean is to tax out her TK and act as a brake. I'm not sure why we needed to wait quite this long to attempt this plan, but whatever. It works. It works so. So the Axemen are back on Earth, and none the worse for wear. They then attack Magneto, smashing through the igloo. Which, I mean, isn't much of a surprise Everybody's able to break through Bobby's ice structures So why not the X-Men too? Anyway, it's fighting time Magneto grabs Bobby and threatens to kill him If the X-Men come any closer Only, he doesn't realize that Angel is swooping in behind him At that very moment So Warren socks Magneto and grabs Iceman Flying him to safety Professor X then calls for the X-Men to Stop fighting Hmm. Now Magneto's confused And so Charles points to the sky behind him Like, hey, look, look at that. And Magneto's all, yeah, right, like, I'm gonna fall for that one. But, here's the thing, there actually is something behind Magneto, and it is the Stranger. Also, the planet Saturn. So it must be an incredibly clear night up in Salem Center. Uh, Magneto realizes that his captor is actually here, and so he hops into his Magna car and Skadoos. Hank checks in on the lab and sees the clone farm, and they rush inside just as the clones Vanish But how? Well, Bobby reveals that he simply moved the magnetic mutant machine Which stopped the Worthingtons from procreating Speaking of the Richies They wake up Feeling like a literal million bucks We wrap up with them having a meal with Xavier and his students Gene, unsurprisingly, is wearing an apron and serving them all And that is where we leave it Next episode, we get a new character Who's ready to meet the Mimic but first, let's talk about this issue here, and I think we're gonna hit, like, basically all of the essential x last bingo here, uh, right off the bat, um, this was a silly issue, I had fun reading it, and it definitely feels like Stan is getting a little overworked in that he's gotta script all of these books, he's got all of his side projects, he's got the Merry Marvel Marching Society, he's got Skady 800 letters pages, I mean, he's a, he's a busy man, there's only one man, too, so, uh, I think uh, these uh, last few X-Men issues have been a little bit um, wanting And he'll be leaving after next issue as scripter So this is his second to last issue in the uh, hot seat Uh, He'll still be listed first in our credits as editor But uh, we're getting to uh, the end of his run as the sole writer of the X-Men And yeah, I love Stan, but uh, it's not a moment too soon Because these stories are not the greatest things in the world here this book almost like defies meta comics physics here where it's a one and done for the most part but it also feels decompressed. <laughs> it feels like we spent way too much time and we got way too much information. It's uh I don't know, it's kind of a uh, a walking contradiction of a book here and while we get some information, we don't get we don't get some other information here cuz Frankly, I wasn't overly concerned with how Magneto escaped from the Stranger, especially with the way they gave it to us with a page of him finding a rocket and leaving. And it's like, okay, that's, that's it? All right. What we don't learn, though, I mean, let's go back to the earlier Magneto appearances here. What was his entire purpose? His entire purpose was locating the X-Men's headquarters. Every single issue, he was sending the Brotherhood out to try— like, they were literally going door to door— Looking for the X-Men's headquarters And here he is, just knowing it How did he figure this out? We didn't find out how he learned where to go That, to me, is a uh, more interesting story Also, isn't Mastermind still at the mansion? Like, in his stone statue form? Wouldn't Magneto have come across that? Unless he's in a closet somewhere that he didn't open I, I really don't know And also, this is another one where... Professor X kind of upstages the X-Men I mean, the issue of this story is, is if Iceman should fail So it's all about Iceman saving the day And he doesn't, <laughs> he really doesn't He doesn't really even do anything um, He does move the Magnetic Mutant Machine at the very end To make sure the Worthingtons stop procreating But he really didn't hold his own against Magneto He made him slip but then it looked like he was about to be killed until Professor X is like, hey, look behind you. I made the psychic call to the stranger. Turn around, he's going to get you. It's just a, another case of the, the old trope of uh, Professor X being the infallible one. The one who saves the day over and over and over again. You wonder why the X-Men are even part of this book sometimes. And uh, hopefully... When we have our uh, new creative team come in, maybe they'll uh, maybe they'll move Professor X into the background and give the X-Men a little bit more uh, a little more quality panel time rather than just standing there talking and wondering what the professor's next step is going to be. The art here uh, isn't my favorite, as mentioned over the course of the past several episodes. Here, the Werner Roth stuff is uh, not all that pleasant to look at all the time. Uh, there are panels here that look quite nice, but um, the ones that don't. Really don't, uh, and I've mentioned Werner Roth's faces before the facials here are just not pleasant at all But I think that's about all I have to say about this issue Before I start just uh, repeating myself and being too too down on a book that I actually had fun with I hate to pick nits just for the sake of picking nits So uh, let's move on into the letters page here before I uh, before I do that <laughs> Now let's start with Fred in Texas Now, he thought the art in X-Men number 15 sucked He says that Marvel Girl looked about as feminine as the Hulk Which makes me ask, has Fred seen the way that Jack Kirby draws some women? I mean, we've talked about Zelda Uh, Now, he compares Cyclops to Nick Fury shouting orders at the Howlers He thinks Iceman's design blows chunks He thinks that he shouldn't have eyes while iced up And he wants Hank to give Gene a spanking For real, he says that I want to see Hank give Gene a spanking A much-deserved spanking Now Stan responds that the bullpen actually thinks that the Hulk is prettier than Gene Which, uh, is one of those great Stanley uh, answers if ever we heard one We got Yuta in Tokyo Now, they fell in love with Marvel while living in Canada and still loves him in Japan But they don't get many Marvel monthlies in Japan So for the love of Pete, Stan, could you send more books their way? Now, Yuta even translates the comics for their friends. And Stan offers a no prize for the translating duties, but doesn't offer any help on the international distribution department there. He is only one man, after all, and uh, he's quite a busy one at that. Next up, Glenn in California. Now, he suggests that Marvel made X-Men a monthly just so they'd have more opportunities to fill out letters pages. He then accuses Stan of only reading letters that are sent in on Merry Marvel Marching Society stationery. He then offers Stan a saying for Doctor Strange to use. And it's, By the Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch. Mm Mm-hmm, okay. Stan suggests that if he were to use By the Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch, that Glenn would probably sue him the second he saw it in print. He then assures all the readers that he reads all the fan mail, no matter what it's written on. And if you're wondering who or what a Hieronymus Bosch is... um, He was a Dutch painter who was born somewhere around 1450 and passed in 1516. I don't know much about him, but a cursory bit of research doesn't mention much about his use of the color orange. So, I don't know. Maybe uh, Glenn knows something I don't. If you're listening, Glenn, let me know. Next up, Robert in Toronto. He wants Cyclops to marry Jean Grey, and uh, he probably doesn't want to to wait 30 years for this to happen. Stan kind of hems and haws about the budding romance, citing that, uh, hey, you know what? The X-Men have been pretty busy of late, so maybe somewhere down the line. Steve in New York City. He loved Marvel's collector's item classics, and he loves seeing Professor X get the spotlight in X-Men. Now, Stan is pleased with all the nice letters they've received about MCIC, and uh, uh, personally, for me, uh, I think we've seen enough of Professor X in the spotlight, so I'd like to see him... Not in the spotlight from uh, this point on But I guess that will remain to be seen Tom in Ohio Loved X-Men number 14 And is a huge fan of Jay Gavin's art Now he says if Angel's wings didn't sprout until he was at military school Then he's not really a mutant He says he can only be a mutant If he was born with the things that give him his powers And he dares stand to try and walk his way out of this one well, Stan simply says that Warren was born a mutant. It just took 13 years for the wings to sprout. So I guess we could say challenge accepted by Stan there, and he knocked it out of the park. Now, as a fan of my vintage, this all sounds right, because we were always told that mutant powers would manifest around the time of puberty. So, sounds good to me. Next up, Laura in New York City. Now, she starts off her letter by stating that she is, in fact, a a g- g-g-g-g-g-girl. And suddenly, she gets the 1966 approximation of 1,000 new Twitter followers. Now, she reads X-Men, Fantastic Four, and The Avengers, likes the X-Men best of all. She asks Stan why he doesn't act sober, citing that the blurbs on the covers and his responses to letters are, quote, all over the place. And she wonders why Stan makes fun of mutants in the letters pages, which I don't recall seeing, but I'm certainly not about to argue with a g-g-girl, um... Now Stan replies by calling her a pussycat And he apologizes for acting so silly So another perfect Stan answer Alan in Missouri He's been reading Marvel for One year and 13 months How does hmm? One year and 13 months Why not just say two years And Okay uh, Thinks Marvel's the best Thinks that X-Men 15 was so good It was beyond description which, I guess that's one way of putting it uh, He hopes that 16 will be even better And he wants to see more of The Stranger uh, Stan reminds us that we got a panel of The Stranger this time out And he thanks Alan for saying Marvel's the best And he wonders who it is putting all those other books on the newsstand racks So, uh, Stan's, you know, he's getting spicy about the competition here And he will continue to do so over the next several, uh, installments Billy in Massachusetts claims to be A sophisticated Marvel marcher And he thanks Stan for providing the service of Marvel Comics Because the stories, they're entertaining, yes But they also provide us with a moral lesson And uh, I think we get our very first Make Mine Marvel In these letters pages as well And he says, until the angel malts Namor turns green and Spidey falls off a wall Make Mine Marvel now Stan gloms on to the fact that uh, Marvel is providing a service And he suggests that, uh, hey, you know, the books are so great they ought to be tax deductible And yeah, I would co-sign that in, in a New York minute A heartbeat even Let's, let's make comics tax deductible Let's get that on a, on a ballot somewhere Next up, Steve in California He loved X-Men number 15 And he hopes Stan doesn't F things up by hooking Scott and Gene up He doesn't like Spider-Man being a mush in his stories, and he doesn't want to see that happen in the X-Men. He liked the cover of X-Men 15 and just wishes there were more colors used. To which Stan worries about uh, how Steve received X-Men number 17, since that cover was completely red. And uh, he also isn't so sure about the Scott Jean romance thing just yet. Walter in Pennsylvania will be our final letter. And he says... How come Xavier wasn't able to use his mental abilities on the Sentinel in X-Men 14, but he was able to shut down a whole fleet of them in X-Men 15? Oh, well, that's a pretty great question, right? And I'm sure Stan has a very logical explanation. No, no, he does not. Stan claims to be already hard at work writing X-Men number 20, and he uh, says he forgot all about the finer details of the Sentinel story, so whoops. Uh, he goes ahead and offers a no prize to anyone who might be able to lend him a hand. From here, let's head into the bullpen bulletins here, and uh, we're going to hit all the departments of the bullpen. We're going to start with the how about that department. Now, Stan was interviewed on the Tommy Marvin radio show, The World Today from Mutual Network. And also, the September 1965 issue of Esquire included the Hulk and Spider-Man on their list of 28 people who count most on campus— And uh, if you have a subscription to Esquire, you could probably find this thing Because uh, they do have classic Esquires on the internet This might come as a huge surprise, but I do not have a subscription to Esquire So I am unable to check that out And from the five or six sample pages from that issue that are available for everyone to see Unfortunately, the uh, list of 28 people who count most on campus was not among them Next up, the Did You Know Department now, did you know, serious collectors of Marvel lore can fill in holes by picking up Marvel's collector's item classics. So someone, please, please pick that book up. Uh, did you know the majority of Marvel letter hacks are for continuing stories rather than one-and-done, so they like the long stories. Did you know the Merry Marvel Marches have been coloring in their MMMS stationery when they send in their missives? And uh, I wonder if they'll get credited for coloring. Hmm. Did you know, Stephen Strange wasn't the first Doctor Strange in a Marvel comic? The first Doctor Strange was actually a villain in an Iron Man story, but don't ask Stan which issue he appeared in, because he's already forgotten. Well, good thing I'm here, and a good thing we have a Marvel Wiki, because uh, I was able to find out that this is Carlo Strange, and he first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 41, May 1963 cover date, and uh, according to the Marvel Wiki, he only really appeared this one time. He showed up in, like, handbooks and stuff, and I think a... uh, a Marvel's story from Kirk Busick, but, uh, I think this was basically it. Into the strictly personal department. Now, Stan G., Marvel artist and colorist, just drew an ad for a large soft drink company which could be seen in Times Square. Stan says it looks like something out of Millie the Model, which makes sense, since Stan G. is the artist on that mag. Mickey Spillane, the author of Mike Hammer, he used to script for Marvel. And it's true, he wrote several stories between 1942 and 1943. They include all Winner's Comics issues 3, 6, and 9, Submariner Comics 4 and 6, Marvel Mystery Comics number 28 through 37, Joker Comics 1 and 2, Human Torch 9 and 10, and USA Comics 6 through 9. Bill Everett, the creator of Namor and the artist on Daredevil number 1, is looking to rejoin the Marvel bullpen on a permanent basis. And it looks like he sort of kind of will. Uh, Marvelites will see him in the credits some more Heading into the early 70s Finally, Roy Thomas can read hieroglyphics Okay Into the department of utter confusion As if the Roy Thomas and hieroglyphics Wasn't confusing enough Uh, Marvel comics are worldwide, mostly Marvel Mania is sweeping Mexico Where the Hulk is known as La Mole The Thing is El Colasso, Daredevil is El Dynamo And Doctor Strange is Dr. Centella Or Centella Now, Marvels can be found all over Latin America, except Cuba, because the bearded one has banned all comics as subversive literature. And Stan considers that a compliment. Finally, our wrap-up. Marvel mags are easier to carry than books full of Shakespeare, so saith Irving Forbush. So uh, dump your Romeo and Juliet and pick up uh, some Strange Tales, I guess. Uh, The MMMS gets 26 new members, and nobody really stands out. No Dick Hurts third this time, so we'll just uh, move on to the mighty Marvel checklist. Start with Fantastic Four number 49, which features more Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Spider-Man 35 has the return of the Molten Man. Avengers number 26, Whatever Happened to Giant Man and the Wasp? Daredevil number 14, Foggy and Karen Return. There's a crisis in the courtroom and more Kazar. Thor 126, You'll Never Guess. You'll never in a million... It's Thor vs. Hercules! Again! Tales to Astonish 78. There's a new baddie for the Hulk, and it's Conrad Saxon. And a new old baddie for Submariner, and it's the Puppet Master. Tales of Suspense 76. Iron Man vs. Ultimo, which we're going to be saying for like the next 17 episodes, I think. Uh, Captain America vs. Batroc Z. Leaper. Still. Strange Tales 143. Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. captured by Mentolo and the Fixer. And Doctor Strange does it again. What's it? Well, Stan ain't telling. I guess we gotta buy the book and find out. Sergeant Fury, number 28. The Howlers vs. Baron Strucker. Again. Fantasy Masterpieces, number one. Now, we already read this blurb, because Stan really, really wants you to buy it. Marvel Collector's Item Classics, number two. We get early Ant-Man, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man stories. Unabridged, Which I take it to mean that uh, maybe a lot of the reprints are kind of edited for... Maybe not for content, but for size, length? I don't know. So I guess getting these all in their uh, original glory is something that uh, fans of the day would be very excited for. But that is our Mighty Marvel Checklist. And uh, before we go, we're going to head into the ads here. We're not going to be doing ads every day, but uh, just when something kind of stands out. We do have a few ads here that do. Uh, First, we do have our MMMS page And if you all remember that Hulk sweatshirt last time You know, many of us already knew what the mystery image on the back of it was But uh, we couldn't see it because Doctor Doom's cape was in the way Here, we get to see it in all its glory, both sides And it's still yours for $2.98 Now, Iceman is our pitch man here And he promises that the sweatshirt will make you more attractive to people, dogs, and mirrors So, he wouldn't lie to you our first non-Marvel ad is the Record Riot, 60 smash hits for the price of a two-sided Hulk sweatshirt. So you can annoy your parents with rip-off versions of Beatles songs and many, many more, including um 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 and uh, that ain't me stuttering there, pussycats. Uh, as I as I am known to do, I do um a lot, but that is actually the name of a song apparently. A uh, Surfin' Bird, which I think uh, you'd probably want to drive your head into the wall after listening to. I Am Henry Eighth I Am, The Jolly Green Giant, and who could ever forget, The Little Old Lady from Pasadena. Now, you would think like this was like a Ronco 8-track ad, if only it featured England Dan and John Ford Coley. It's uh, pretty wild. And now, these come to you on ten long-playing 45s. You're basically looking at less than a nickel a song here, gang. Unless you're in Canada, and I think it's like $5 a song at that point. Our second and final ad is the Joker's special. I mentioned that we get these things in almost every issue. It's the uh, the gags. You play them on your friends, your neighbors, your priests, your <laughs> teachers. I don't know. Uh, ten rib-splitting jokes and foolers for the cost of a six-foot-tall Spider-Man poster. Now this includes the so-called Atomic Joy Buzzer. Don't know why it's so-called. Um, maybe the Atomic Joy Buzzer was already trademarked and. <laughs> <laughs> this is the fake-ass Atomic Joy Buzzer Enjoy it Also, the Razzer Now, the Razzer lets out a Bronx cheer at passerbys For folks who are unaware The Bronx cheer is a, uh, a raspberry You know, a, you know, a, you know, that So, something I did without buying a Razzer device You know, I, I think we can all do that without buying a Razzer device Um, the ad promises that it's a real laugh-getter. Okay. A squirt ring. Now, the squirt ring is a classic. We see it all the time. But I'm only including it here in the because of the description we get. What a beautiful ring, dash dash, then showers. I think one of those Marvel AIs might have wrote this copy. I mean, what a beautiful ring, then showers. Okay. Dirty soap. Dirty soap, which is a... Uh, A soap that makes you dirtier the more you use it. Classic, right? I couldn't imagine this being used more than once. (laughs) By the time you use it once, I mean, you're going to see just crap everywhere. Now, the one that really, really gets me here is uh, the phony marriage license. Huh. Can I offer a fake-ass no prize to ask how this could ever be funny? Like, what could you possibly do with a phony marriage license? You're like an eight-year-old and is like, Hey, Mom, I'm married now? I mean, what, what is the joke here? What's the gag? I, I really don't know why you'd put any money down for a phony marriage license. You could get a napkin and write marriage license on it. It's, it's, it that even, might be even more funny. I don't know. This is not a laugh-getter, in my opinion, but uh, I'm putting it out there. A Fake-ass no prize to anyone who can tell me how this would work and how this would inspire a single laugh. Now, at prices this low, you're limited to one set per customer, so sorry, gang, you're you're not going to be able to resell these things on eBay. But that's going to do it for the ads. Like I said, we're not going to be doing ads all the time because we're going to see these same ads like for the next five issues. So I'm not going to be talking about them every single time out. But if something does stand out, or if you're reading along and if you are looking at the ads and there's one that you really want me to discuss, let me know. We will uh, definitely, definitely cover it here on the show. Before we cut out of here, let's hop into our own mailbag, where we have a letter from our friend Billy D. He says, Hey Chris, really enjoying the show, especially your thoughts on the letter columns and the other ephemera. Boy, old Stanley seems to get a little punchy when people talk junk about Marvel, eh? He does seem to take it in stride most of the time, though. I can't wait to hear what's coming up regarding his columns. Cheers. And yes, last time out, I did discuss that Stan will be getting a little spicy. <laughs> it's going to be some spicy Stan Hot Takes on uh Brand Ech and the rest. It's uh it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to cover here because I've never seen this stuff firsthand, you know. I feel like the Stan we know and remember, uh, especially folks of my vintage, you know, he's Uncle Stan, you know. He's a, he's a member of the family. He's the fun guy who is always happy, he's always smiling, always has the fun stories. And to see firsthand him kind of just, like, laying into the books that he feels are inferior, it's a real eye-opener. And he still does it in the Stan way where it's not, like, it's not vitriolic, but you can tell there's some heart and passion behind it. And that, you know, I think a lot of revisionist history on Stan has... uh, has kind of put it out there that Stan never wanted to be in comics. He wanted to be a novelist. He thought that comics were a stepping stone of sorts and uh, would never really admit to being in comics. And there's certainly a measure of truth to that. We can, I guess, debate how much of that is true and how much of that was taken to heart. But it can't be denied that Stan is very passionate about comics and what he feels... Is the level of quality and what kind of an art form comics should be here? And uh, when he sees inferior comics occupying and even pushing Marvel off the racks at some places, uh, he's not going to be quiet about it. He won't name names because Stan is a gentleman. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that in future episodes, and it's it's gonna be fun. I'm looking forward to sharing that, and I'm also looking forward to hearing what you all think about uh, Stan's thoughts on the mid '60s industry. It's a uh, it's going to be a fun conversation. But thank you so much for writing in Billy and I'm so happy that you're enjoying the uh, the back matter of the Essential X Lapsed. It's a uh, it's probably the funnest part for me because this is stuff that I haven't covered before. There's stuff that I haven't seen or read before. I've, you know, we've read the comics before, but uh, putting ourselves into the gestalt of it and getting ourselves into the actual day and era it's been a lot of fun. It's been an educational experience, and it's uh, been an absolute blast. And uh, I, I feel so happy I've been able to share that with folks who may not have uh, ever taken a look at these letters pages or pens or just getting to see more of Stan. You know, it's, uh, it's always nice to see Stan in his element here, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. But anyway, that's going to do it for today. If anybody out there would like to reach out and say hello, I would uh, encourage you to do so. You can find me several different places. Uh, on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me an email to History at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lives voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to infiniteearths.com You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, well, you know the place. You're probably there now or thereabouts now. That's Reggie.podbean.com available on all of your podcast listening applications and devices. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. everybody, this is Chris, welcome to episode 26 of The Essential X-Lapsed where I'm getting this recording in a bit early uh, Stop me if you heard this one I've got um, several hours of fairly invasive dental work to be done uh, a little bit later on today And so, uh, gotta make sure I get this done before that because I don't know if I'll be able to speak after that Not that I, not that I speak all that well uh, regularly but it's probably still a pretty good idea to get it out of the way before... Uh, I'm you know torn open about the uh the mouth gums and uh jaw um <laughs> it'll also provide me with a little bit of a distraction here um'm a little nervous uh not only because uh, this is going to be rather painful but uh i I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about what they might find once they uh once they're in there it's probably not gonna be anything you know too terrible but uh you know you always have that uh That fear in the back of your mind here And, uh, yeah, I've I've got some of that And while on that subject, I guess a a programming note Or a possible programming note uh, Depending on uh, my ability to speak for any length of time after today uh, I'm not sure what the next episode's going to be Uh, We might call an audible Uh, Me and Mr. Bailey do have an episode of Quester Days in the the, uh, hopper So I might uh, play with the schedule a little bit That's supposed to come out Sunday, but... If uh, I'm unable to speak or perform <laughs> the next episode, uh, I, might, uh, I might play with the schedule a little bit. But uh, shouldn't miss a day. Hopefully we won't miss a day, especially this close to one year of uh, daily shows here. But uh, I guess we'll play it by ear. And with all that out of the way, let's get into today's book here. Now, this is X-Men number 19, which has an April 1966 cover date. The is called Low... Now shall appear The Mimic Written and edited by Stan Lee This is his, uh, swan song This is his final issue as, a scripter Of the X-Men Next issue will bring in Roy Thomas Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin Inks Dick Ayers. Letters, Artie Simic Colors, we might actually have a colorist here Um, because Stan says Everything else is by Irving Forbush So, uh, I'm guessing Maybe Irv Forbush Is our colorist If not, I mean, it's a good enough guess, I suppose. And this issue had a $0.12 cover price. Now, this one has a fairly iconic cover. I suppose if you're an X-Men fan, you probably would recognize this one. This, of course, has the mimic on the cover front and center. And he's basically the X-Men's version of the Super Yeah, He's got each of the X-Men's powers and uh, a horrifyingly ugly costume. So uh, (laughs) there's that as well. Let's get into the issue. Now we open with a danger room training session And, uh, hey, you know I usually give them a little bit of guff for this But it's actually been a little while since we've seen one of these So, I, you know, I guess we'll allow it Or at least it feels like it has been Anyway, we've got Professor S Directing traffic here Cyclops is, uh, overseeing the endeavor Uh, we got the barefoot beast Balancing on a beam while brandishing a ball With his bare feet Iceman hurls his frosty toothpick At a target as though it were a javelin Angel, uh Well, he flies around, uh, probably trying to avoid nets, since that's kind of all he does. Marvel Girl reads while TKing a copy of Monsters Unlimited. (gasps) Would someone please buy Monsters Unlimited already so Stan can stop mentioning it, please? do, Do me a favor, you know, 60 years in the future. Now, as our Danger Room scenarios are known to go, things quickly devolve down into horseplay. Uh, Angel swoops down, which knocks Bobby's dart off target And so Bobby chucks a mess of ice flakes into Angel's face And then the pair face off like they're gonna do something about it Until Cyclops blasts Iceman's frosty rod to bits And the boys decide to settle their tea kettles, at least for now Off to the side, the bare-handed beast attempts to dazzle the crew By walking on one hand across his trapdoor obstacle Cyclops warns him against this, but Hank cannot be deterred Now he winds up triggering a trap Which hurls I don't know what it is Maybe it's a sack of dirty laundry into the air I don't know Well Beast, he catches it with his feet He kicks it past Angel Knocks the monster's unlimited mag out of Gene's telekinetic grip And then nearly hits Cyclops in the dome But thankfully Scott has his cursed optic blasts To protect him Now Professor X watched this whole scene play out And rather than hand out demerits like Halloween candy, he applauds his students for their work in tandem He then delivers a special announcement And, uh, well, stop me if you've heard this one before He's gonna reward the X-Men with a vacation I mean, didn't we, like, just do that? Oh, well Now, Cyclops, he seems a bit down Because, well, he has no life outside the X-Men Bobby and Hank, they rush out to wherever they're gonna go uh, On an ice slide Which Jean declares that she will not clean up after when it melts Now that tells you a lot about Jean's role on the team and in the house, doesn't it? That's kind of unfortunate Angel suggests that he and Scott head out on a double date And I don't know how this would work Considering there's just one girl here and they both have the hot pants for her and maybe, maybe Scott will invite the professor But, well, then that would be even worse for Gene now, wouldn't it? Anyway, let's stop thinking about that scenario immediately, and instead, let's go rejoin Bobby and Hank, who, surprisingly enough, are not headed to the coffee a go Because, you see, it's Zelda's day off from the coffee shop, so young Master Drake has no reason to pop in for a cup. Instead, they're headed to the New York Public Library for a double date of their own. Now, Bobby, he's going to be with Zelda, of course, and Hank... Well, he's going to be with Zelda's friend. So, once inside the library, Hank immediately gets into an argument with the cute young librarian on duty. Any guesses where this is headed? Well, if you were to guess that this cute young librarian was going to wind up being Hank's blind date, well, then you win the pony. Zelda shows up and introduces the CYL as her bestie, Vera. Now, Vera, the first time I ever met Vera was during the late 80s X Factor run where she had gone from, like, the mousy bookworm that she is here to a, like, weirdo new-wave 80s punk. (laughs) Very, very bizarre, like, partially shaved head, the big sunglasses. It, it, like, kind of looked like one of the mutants from Dark Knight Returns. Uh, At least that's what I can remember (laughs) of it. Uh, I could be completely mistaken and conflating, but uh, that's what I remember. Anyway, once the dramatic dust settles, the foursome head out to go on their date. Outside, they run afoul of local douchebag, the pink-faced Calvin Rankin. So, uh, if Irving Forbush is the colorist, he's not a great colorist, is he? Now, here's the thing. old Rankin's got the hot pants for Vera and will not take no for an answer. As you see, she once helped him locate a book at the library about mine engineering, which will come up again later. And ever since, old Cal's been hooked on her. Beast steps in, he literally suns Rankin, he calls him son, and then gets punched for his trouble. Then, it's on. Hank and Cal literally bounce around the sidewalk, attempting to land blows on one another. And our man Hank is bamboozled that this Jergov seems to be able to keep up with his own dexterity. Now, he's so shocked by this that it opens up the opportunity for Cal to deliver a dropkick to the back of his head. Now, it's worth noting Cal removed his shoes at some point. He's sock-footed. Okay Now Bobby attempts to intervene And Cal winds up thwapping him in the mush with a snowball but, 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 but how can this possibly be? Huh Maybe we'll find out in a little bit But first, some nearby construction workers watch this entire scene play out And they proceed to rush Ol' Rankin Accusing him of being a dirty, stinking mutant Cal then erects an ice shield uh, And escapes by running up the wall of a nearby building Now Bobby, he just kind of stands there in awe He's not sure what he'd just seen. He does comment on the mob scene, however. He cites that it's exactly what Professor X said would happen. And uh, not for nothing, I mean, didn't the same scene play out for he and Hank back in X-Men number 8? So this really shouldn't be any sort of surprise, though I suppose readers of the day might have needed the reminder. Atop the building, we rejoin Calvin, who deduces, since he was able to mimic their powers, that, well, he probably just ran into two members of the X-Men. And he vows to find the rest of the X-Men and put an end to them altogether. For, uh, reasons, I guess. Anyway, it turns out, as uh, he goes further and further from Hank and Bobby, his mimicked powers wear off. So, the gimmick is that he's got to be in close proximity to the X-Men, or whoever's powers he's trying to swipe, in order to, you know, swipe those powers. Later on, we head to the mall where Jean Grey is shopping, because, uh, well, girls be shopping, y'all. Uh, she accidentally bumps into a certain pink-faced Cretan who snaps at her for her clumsiness, even going so far as to suggest that he'd belt her one if she weren't a female. He then sits down and realizes that he can now move things with his mind. That's a pretty convenient, and of course this pink-faced Cretan is uh, Calvin Rankin, uh, and he has just run into Marvel Girl of the X-Men, so uh, well, what a day for him. Now, back at the mansion, Bobby and Hank explain their experience to the professor. Now, Charles is a little bit confused, seeing as though Cerebro didn't pick up on there being any sort of new mutant around. To which it's like, um, well, maybe because Magneto melted Cerebro last issue? Uh, could that be it? Uh, nah, let's not let's not even worry about that. Uh, Hank wonders aloud if uh, perhaps Cerebro might need some uh, fine-tuning, which seems to deeply offend the professor. He's like, how dare you? <laughs> How dare you question the good name of Cerebro? Uh, even though, like we said, it, it was melted last issue. Uh, if, if there was something wrong with it, I guess we could accept it, because it was melted. Anyway, just then, the doorbell obnoxiously rings, and outside the door is an equally obnoxious idiot. It's Calvin Rankin, hat in hand. Well, bag in hand. Um, because he's here, because he would like to do two things. He would like to apologize to the X-Men for his uh, transgressions and his uh, jerkishness. And he would also like to join the X-Men. Hmm. Once inside, Cal is introduced to the rest of our uncanny teens. And it's worth noting, he's wearing smoked glasses to hold back his mimicked optic blasts. And, uh, hmm. You guys know me. I suppose we could get stuck on this bit. And I could spend... However long I need to to talk about the importance of Ruby Quartz. But how about we just play along? Because uh, that ain't gonna get us nowhere. And it'll only serve to frustrate us even more. Uh, Hopefully, maybe in the letters page, five or six issues down the line, someone will mention this, and uh, it'll be uh, no-prized. And we can just accept whatever answer comes. Anyway, Cal shakes hands with Angel, and he suddenly feels wings begin to sprout from his back. Cal then goes to formally apologize to Bobby and Hank, but, uh, well, they ain't buying it. Professor X admonishes them for being inhospitable to their guest. Stan Lee's minutes later later, Cal has retired to his room upstairs, while the rest of the X-Men fret over what this all might mean. Because A, he knows who they are, and B, now he's a member of their team. What's up with that? Well, let's head upstairs and check in on our uh, newest X-Man, as he introduces himself to his body. Let's get our minds out of the gutter gang, that's uh, not what I mean He first removes his shoes, revealing his newly engorged feet He then removes his shirt and girdle, revealing his newly budded wings From here he changes into his dork suit And heads back downstairs to reveal his true intentions You see, he's here to defeat the X-Men Why? Who knows? So it's probably worth noting here That not only does Cal have all the powers of the X-Men But also Professor X's mental abilities as well Which makes him quite the formidable foe um, Who, over the course of the next three or so pages The X-Men are going to absolutely trounce Wow, that was quick Um, Now, you know, if not for the stupid name Stupid costume, stupid character This guy might have been a top-tier X-Men baddie moving forward I mean, as mentioned, he's basically the X-Men's version of the Super Scroll. Um... Though sadly, he's about as interesting as the Super Scroll as well. So, yeah, the X Men take turns beating up Cal Rankin until he's just laid prone before them. But then he gets up, he nabs Marvel Girl, and runs off. Cyclops goes to stop him, but Xavier orders him to back off. We jump to Stan Lee double time later, which is, of course, seconds later, where the mimic is speeding away from the mansion in his hoopty with Jean in the passenger seat. The X-Men follow from above in their X copter, which I'd like to remind you all just took off from Professor Xavier's backyard. So <clears throat> anyway, you know, it would probably be so much more helpful if the X-Men had a member of their team who could fly, right? Hmm, if only. Anyway, they follow our baddie all the way down to a mine shaft. Remember, he did borrow a book on mine engineering, so it is all coming together. Now, as they enter, Gene notices that Cal's body no longer resembles the beast's, and also he no longer has wings So, uh, what's up with that? Huh, so Together they head deep into the mine All the way to some, uh Well, fairly mundane-looking living quarters It looks like a Like a house or an apartment Just deep underground Now it's here That Calvin Rankin will share The secret origin Of the Mimic Because why not? We got pages to fill So into flashback land we go Calvin's father was a scientist, and we know this because the first image we see of him has him pouring the contents of a test tube into a beaker. That's kind of what they do. Now, Cal, as a boy, was still an asshole. So one day, while screwing around in his dad's lab, he knocked over a beaker, which expelled a gas which he breathed in. And from that point on, he was a most changed boy. Now, he was suddenly able to beat up the school's boxing champion, I don't remember my school having a boxing champion. Anybody listening uh, go to a high school that had a boxing league? I'd like to hear from you. What's more, uh, Cal just became like an all-around great athlete and scholar. And his classmates grew to be quite jealous. And naturally, that jealousy blossomed into... Fear and hate. Now, Calvin's father figured things out pretty quickly... After all, the son he knew and tolerated was a complete loser. So there had to be some sort of explanation as to why he was suddenly so good at everything. Or anything. So they moved into this abandoned mine shaft in order to try and study this change. Cal's pop said, uh, he said that they were going to do this in order to make his mimicking powers permanent. As in, he would work towards making it so it wouldn't matter the proximity that he's into someone who's actually talented or smart, right? So... He would just get these powers, and he would never lose them, despite how far he might be from wherever he got the powers from. And, you know, Cal hears this, and he is just all about it. Now, here's the thing. Together, they built a machine to accomplish this task. But the machine caused such a drain on local power that it made them, well, basically public enemies number one and two. Now, the town would track them down and attack... With shotguns I mean, they find the mine shaft They, they see that their power is waning, right? Their, their, their electricity's going out They just don't have any power in this town And they're able to Somehow triangulate the power suck To um, the Rankin family So, I don't know So yeah, they're there with shotguns uh, Cal's dad decides to seal off the entrance to the mine In order to keep the unruly mobbed of armed fear and haters out Only the explosion that's set to keep them out Well, it wound up killing him. It it did seal the entrance, so that was a a success, but it also killed him. So Cal would go on to do his best Kane Marco impression and spend the next little while digging himself out of the rubble. Once out, it looks like he gave his father a formal funeral, all by his lonesome, and he vows at his father's grave that he would unearth the machine and go on to become the mightiest man in the world. And, uh, well, that's where the X-Men came into his plan— Gene Grey specifically. Because once the X-Men find the mine, Cal will swipe their powers again and dig out the machine so he can be permanently powered up. And so, uh, moments later, the X-Men approach the mine. Now, Cal can tell that they're coming because his wings have begun to grow back, so he is in close proximity to the Angel. And so he heads deeper into the mine, and through mimicking of Cyclops, Beast, and Professor X's powers, he is able to locate and unearth the magical mystery machine. Now the X-Men enter the mine, and uh, just as Cal is about to pull the lever in order to empower himself forever, Cyclops blasts it in two. Cal responds by erecting an ice wall, which, I mean, that like never works when Kid Cool does it, right? Well, Cal proves to be just a little bit smarter than our favorite 16-year-old, because not only does he erect this massive wall, he then topples it over on top of the X-Men, which is, like, the best thing you could do, probably, right? Cal then nabs Professor X and rushes to the machine The remaining X-Men manage to pull themselves together And then they go in for an attack But, once again, Xavier tells them not to He's like, hey, stay your course, stay stay over there (laughs) Don't mess with this Uh, Cal puts on this, like, stupid helmet that's attached to the machine Flips a switch and then is suddenly bathed in electricity After that passes, he slumps to the ground Xavier orders the X-Men to get everybody outside because things are about to blow Angel grabs Charles and uh, Hank's got the mimic Once outside, the mine explodes And here, the professor explains the situation Now you see, here's the thing Calvin's daddy, well, he wasn't trying to give his son permanent powers with this machine He was actually trying to take his mimic ability away And so, now that Cal, you know, did the thing He no longer has the power to mimic Then, one mind wipe later, and everybody's back to normal. Calvin Rankin doesn't have any powers, and he hasn't the foggiest idea who the X-Men really are. So, bada-bing, bada-boom. Praise be to the Professor once again. And we are out of here. Thus ends the uh, Stan Lee scripting era. Next time out, we introduce Stan's boy, Roy, to the uh, scripting seat, and uh, we meet us uh, some more X-Men imposters. So, hope you're all looking forward to that. But, uh, well, we should... We should probably talk about this issue, huh? Um, I tell you what, uh, I write a lot of scripts, right? I've written hundreds and hundreds of scripts to perform on the air here. It's with these essential episodes, the the bit of the script, my my bullet points where I'm going to discuss what happens in the issue, I feel like that's been the most challenging bit of, uh, of writing that I've ever had to do for this sort of project here. And I mean... I've got thousands of blog posts where I've done basically the same thing just in written format. But here, it's like, what do you say, right? I mean, there's only so many times I could say this was silly Silver Age stuff. I had fun with it, but it's, you know, it doesn't really hold up. It's not something I can analyze, really. Uh, It was very convenient. I mean, how many times can I say that without it just being like, oh, well, this is what Chris is going to say about every single issue. But, I mean, that said, that's uh, kind of what it is, right? I mean, this felt like it could have been any interchangeable Silver Age story where we get the uh, the one-and-done villain who appears to be unbeatable until he's beaten within, like, two or three pages. It's nothing we haven't seen before, and it's nothing that we won't see again. And I get that this is, you know, Stan's swan song as scripter here, so it's not like he's going to kick off a three- or four-part story, even though... I feel like the character of the Mimic, had he not been so corny, um, might have been able to uh, shoulder a longer uh, story arc here. I mean, we got two uh, issues out of the Juggernaut, we got three out of the Sentinels. I think the Mimic, who has all the powers of the X-Men, including the powers of Professor X, could have have been a longer-term villain here. And, I mean, we will be seeing the Mimic again, right? He's not... Actually going anywhere he'll be here as a friend he'll be here as a foe he'll be he'll be in and out he'll be a mutant then he'll not be a mutant then he'll be a mutant again then he'll not be a mutant it's gonna it's gonna get silly <laughs> it's gonna get very silly but for this introduction to him and of course this has hindsight right um when Stan introduced the mimic here in nineteen sixty six he may have been always intended to be a one and done uh, this is before continuity was really. Well, there was continuity, of course, but lore was still something that was very new. Uh, the X-Men were barely three years old at this point, so the concept of digging deep into lore to, uh, to inform future stories was really not so much a thing at this point. So, for all we know, Stan was like, okay, there's a one and done, he's got no powers, he's got no memory, he's done now. And it wasn't until the fans turned pro got involved in the industry where we started to really dredge... The, uh, the more obscure characters and bring them back into the forefront So that makes it even harder to criticize this story Because all I'm criticizing is based on hindsight And knowing where these characters are going to head Knowing what... I mean, the mimic's not a huge part of X-Men lore But he is a part of it So to look back on this first story, see him jobbed out the way he is It's kind of like, wow, that's underwhelming <laughs> You know, but... Uh, That's, I guess that's kind of the hurdle that we have to uh, try to jump in reading this 60 years later. You know, reading it in 66 would be a totally different experience than reading it in, you know, 2021. So I guess take all of my criticisms with uh, a shaker or two of salt. So I guess I can pop right into my overall statement. (laughs) Um, I had fun reading this. Uh, Calvin Rankin is just such a douchebag, and uh, he's someone you want to see get beat up, and... We get to see him get beat up here, so that's a good thing. I don't have any complaints about Werner Roth's art here. Um, I feel like he did a really good job here. Not so many scary, crazy, ugly faces. I, I think this was a, a really good showing from Roth. Um, you know, if I were to complain about anything having to do with the art, it would be the coloring, which uh, will blame that damn Forbush, right, for uh, the pink-faced Calvin Rankin. I don't know if that's supposed to... Like, show off his fiery personality, or maybe he just has hay fever. Heck, maybe both. But uh, that's all I have to say about this issue, the Stan Lee Swan song. Really looking forward to uh, the Roy Thomas stuff here, because I feel like that's where we're really going to start weaving the web of continuity here. Um, I have scripted a couple of episodes ahead, so I do know that uh, Roy Thomas will be playing with... um, X-Men continuity, as in, you know, bringing things that had previously appeared back into the forefront here. Kind of giving us a cohesiveness here. A lot of the questions we've been asking about, like, hey, is this ever going to show up again? Or are they ever going to mention this again? And, well, under Roy Thomas, yes. (laughs) Yes, they will for a lot of the things that we've been asking about. So, hope you're looking forward to that. I know I am. It's uh, just going to be... you know, no Nothing to disparage the Stanley run here But I feel like uh, a breath of fresh air uh, In a new voice Is, uh, is always welcome And uh, I am looking forward to digging into that run uh, Just as deep as we dug into this one So uh, we will do that next time But for now Let's hop into the letters page And we're going to kick things off with Dorothea in Ohio Now she comes to Stan's aid Regarding a letter that we covered a few episodes back Which took the man to task for his poor Latin usage when using terms like Homo sapiens rather than Homenes sapientes. Now you see, Dorothea has two years of Latin schooling, with straight A's to boot, and in her experience, and also from the American College Dictionary, the term Homo sapiens has never been used in the Latin plural, and uh, could be applied to one or many. I can't confirm nor deny, agree nor disagree, because I took six years of Spanish that I've almost completely forgotten instead of Latin. Now, Stan is pleased that he was right for once, and it's a sensation that he claims not to be used to. Dean in New York. Now, he wants clarification on the color of the X-Men's costumes, and this is one we've been seeing come up every now and again. He wants to know, are they black and yellow, or are they blue and yellow? He also wants to know how Cyclops was able to live before meeting Professor X. And he would like to see Scott and Jean hook up. So Stan says the costumes, that, well, they're either black and yellow with blue highlights, or blue and yellow with black highlights, so that pretty much answers it. Regarding Scott's cursed optic beams, uh, Stan suggests that Psyche just slept a lot as a kid, and thus didn't have to open his eyes all that often. Hmm. Well, Stan then gets serious and says that the X-Men's powers didn't manifest until adolescence, which I'm glad is becoming, you know, Actually more, you know, canonically known. Uh, Regarding the romance angle, he doesn't offer a whole heck of a lot. He suggests that Scott and Gene probably want to see that storyline continue and percolate as well. Next up, Ken in Colorado. He really dug X-Men number 16. And he says that he liked the uncredited colorist and also the attention to detail in the story. Howard in Illinois. Now, Howard is from Burma, visiting the United States. His mother's uncle is the Secretary General of the United Nations, yu thant How about that? yu uh, thant was the third-ever Secretary General of the UN, and served from 1961 to 1971. He was notable as the first non-Scandinavian to fill that role. He even has his own Wikipedia page and everything if you want to know more. Anyway, Howard discovered the Marvel mags during this visit, and he loves the X-Men and Fantastic Four. He plans on getting a subscription when he gets back home. Now, Stan hopes that you thought read some of the comics, because that would be Marvel's first step toward taking over the world. Next up, Dexter in Mississippi. Love Dexman number 16. He calls Jay Gavin's work an improvement over Kirby. He's a fan of the new Bullpen Bulletin's page, and hey, so are we. He's happy that Marvel are doing reprints with fantasy masterpieces. And he likes that Dr. Doom can keep warm in his new Incredible Hulk sweatshirt. So, uh, wow, this uh, this letter started off okay and then kind of slipped into Marvel AI mode around the halfway point here. Just, uh, this is written by a Marvel robot. Uh, next up, Ricardo in Texas. Now, mm-hmm, who's ready for a hot take? Okay, not, a very not-current-year hot take, right? Well, he loved the three-part Sentinel saga, so we get that out of the way first. But... He thinks that the inclusion of a female on the team ruins everything. He considers Jean to be nothing more than a distraction. Huh? That'll that'll get you that'll get you taken off Twitter, won't it? Uh, anyway, Stan assures us that Jean is here to stay. Wayne in New York. Now Wayne is a member of the Row Chapter of Phi Kappa Tau at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Now he challenges Stanley to include the lyrics. Hey you, get off my cloud From uh, the Rolling Stones song Get off my cloud in an upcoming issue Now he thinks it would make sense for Angel, Thor, or Johnny Storm To be the one that belted out Stan says, challenge accepted And accomplished Since he published this letter which has the line in it He then makes fun of him for writing into The X-Men letters page without having any Firm opinions about the X-Men So uh, word to the wise, at least mention The book you're writing into Blenn in Maryland Now, he loves the, quote, funny jokes in the letters page And suggests that Stan sell and or publish his jokes Oi, with the uh, Marvel AI here um, He also wants to know who gets and reads the mail Well, Stan says that Flo, his gal Friday, gets the mail and distributes it Which is to say she probably just opens it and hands it all to him Since he writes everything anyway Now, he is giddy, giddy at the thought that someone thinks his jokes are funny George in Minnesota. Now, this is more DeVries evolution talk, but uh, this time he comes to Stan's aid. And uh, I guess the Stan-Stans are really coming out of the woodwork here, and, uh, well, I, I kind of want to kill myself for saying Stan-Stans. If, if I ever do that again, please, someone find me and put me out of my misery. Uh, anyway, the DeVries talk is all well and good, but George mentions that it doesn't take into account mutations from... Atomic radiation, which is basically the angle we're taking with the X-Men's flavor of mutation Now Stan gives it the thumbs up But says he's not going to comment on any of the DeVries stuff Because he doesn't understand none of that anyway Alan in Jersey Now he notes that Marvel mags sell out with the quickness Leaving only brand eckh books to stink up the racks He says that last time out there was zero Marvels left on the newsstand So he brought a brand Ech book And he thought it was terrible, lousy even. He says it was old-fashioned, boring, and corny. He says that he saw a brand Ech book steal Stan's line of nuff said, which made him want to see the Avengers or Fantastic Four head across the street and destroy the distinguished competition. Stan says, you know, hey, it's not worth the bother sending anybody over there to destroy them because brand Ech is doing a good enough job destroying themselves as it is. So, uh, wow, same as it ever was, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I am a big DC Comics fan. They do have flashes of brilliance, but uh, more often than not, they're uh, well—they're doing what they're doing now, which is not all that great. Anyway, Craig in Georgia calls the cover to X-Men number 16 corny. Says that a uh, Iceman making a, a ladder or a staircase is uh, is is corny. Speaking of corniness, uh, our man Craig calls Stan out for well playing a certain card twice in very close proximity here. This is uh, regarding. Iceman being kind of taken aback at being called a man for the first time We saw Cyclops call Iceman a man Actually in two lines he called him a boy and then he called him a man Like he's like quiet boy you're a man It was very very strange But turns out that Stan did like the same exact thing with the Human Torch right around the same time So Craig calls him out on it Craig continues the call outs by saying the moral to X-Men number 16 was similar to that of Spider-Man number 20 And, uh, well, Stan doesn't really have much to say At least not on the letters page But if we flip over to the bullpen bulletins page Stan's got a whole lot to say So let's go ahead and do that now We're going to start with the how-about-that department Where we find out that people love Marvel Collector's Item Classics And Stan suggests that, hey, if this keeps up, it could go monthly Next, in the did-you-know department The National Observer did a write up on comics in its October 11th, 1965 edition. It refers specifically to the Merry Marvel Marching Society as a sophisticated book club with chapters at such esteemed schools as Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Also, did you know that Marvel Comics is currently selling 33 million comics a year? That's a lot of books. Finally, did you know, top radio DJs are chatting up their love of Marvel on the air And this will be something we'll be talking about uh, more as we move forward here A lot of, uh, a lot of radio DJs are, are getting in on the MMMS Into the strictly personal department Jack Kirby handed the Captain America pencils to John Romita Bill Everett returns to Marvel in Tales to Astonish Don Heck really likes his car Stan Lee took his first weekend off in forever, as he and his lovely blonde wife took a trip to Toronto. Now, Stan did take some time to belt out a few scripts on the train ride across the border. Irving Forbush, man or myth? Stan promises to tell soon enough. Maybe. Uh, Department of Utter Confusion. The 1965 Marvel annuals are just barely behind us, and it's already time to start planning for the 1966s. And Stan's got so many Marvel projects going, he can't even keep them straight. Finally, into the wrap-up, Stan welcomes all newcomers to the comics fandom and tells them to face front. The Merry Marvel Marching Society welcomes 26 new members. And our mighty Marvel checklist is as follows. Fantastic Four No. 50 features more Silver Surfer, as well as Johnny's first day at college. Spider-Man No. 36, Enter the Looter. Avengers number 27 uh, promises that surprising things are going to happen. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, Daredevil number 15. The Ox of the Enforcers is back. Thor 127. Odin needs help. Whose help? Probably Thor's. Uh, Strange 144. The Druid versus S.H.I.E.L.D. And Doctor Strange goes somewhere nobody's ever gone before. Suspense number 77. Iron Man versus Ultimo. Still and a girl from Captain America's past. Astonish 79, Submariner vs. The Behemoth, and Hulk vs. Hercules. Well, I guess at least it's not Thor vs. Hercules again. Sergeant Fury number 29, uh, all we get from that is Armageddon. Fantasy Masterpieces number 2 promises more Golden Age Marvel, and finally, Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 2 will feature early Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and Ant-Man. Now, no advertisements really stood out to me this time out, so we, will, uh, we won't we will waste any time with those, but uh, that is going to do it for this issue and for uh, this discussion. Now, if anybody out there would like to join in the discussion, I would invite you to do so. You could find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to History at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. And uh, I'm... Excited to announce that we've uh, finally started getting scam calls on the old hotline here So, uh, hey, uh, to all the bots listening, uh, thank you, I guess, for helping me with my uh, pitiful numbers <laughs> and stuff um, Let's see, what else? Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can head to com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sXmen Or you can go to com for the entire archives and if you're feeling generous, hey, maybe uh, share that link. You know, maybe tell people where they could find uh, something that they they might like. It'd really help the show, and uh, personally it would really help me, especially as we rapidly approach the uh, one year of uh, daily podcasts and uh, the one-year anniversary of X-Labs itself. But with all that said, I would like to thank you all so, so much for listening. It really does mean so much to me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris Welcome to episode 27 of The Essential X Lapsed Where uh, I know I mentioned last time out that uh, this episode might be a little delayed Due to some uh, very invasive dental work I had done just yesterday But uh, here I sit, feeling no pain uh, My mouth does feel a little strange So if I do slur a few words, or a few more than usual uh, I do apologize uh, It's all a, a work in progress here I've got a couple more uh, sessions ahead of me and uh, hopefully before long everything will be uh, just where we need it to be. Uh, also, there may be a little bit of a ambient noise in the background today. There's a lot of construction going on across the street from my house and it's also storming or about to storm, which uh, here we are in uh, the middle of August and we're on a streak of under 100 degree weather here in, in a, you know, a Phoenix suburb that I live in. And I think that uh, for all my fellow Phoenician friends here who uh, are enjoying this lull in the temperatures, all I have to say is you're welcome. Because, uh, once again, this is the first summer that my family has a swimming pool. So, uh, of course, it's going to be unseasonably cool. But, with all that hoo-ha out of the way, let's get into today's comic book, which uh, introduces us to our brand new scriptor. Now, this is X-Men number 20 had a May 1966 cover date. The story is called I, Lucifer, dot, dot, dot. And, uh, <laughs> let's talk credits here for a second here. Usually we start with, like, you know, story by, or ri- written by. Well, not in 1966, we didn't. Uh, we start with edited by Stan Lee. <clears throat> Script, Roy Thomas. Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, Dick Ayers. Letters, Artie Simic. Colors are the Blue and Gold Brigade, and our cover price is 12 cents. Now, let's start with our cover here, which is, uh, well, it's pretty busy. It's uh, a little reminiscent of X-Men number 9, where we had, like, the uh, top portion of the cover had the X-Men fighting the Avengers, and then the bottom half had Xavier fighting Lucifer. Well, here on top, the X-Men are fighting, well, we'll get there. Um, down below, it's uh, Lucifer and Xavier again. So, let's open her up. We open... With a pair of X-Men imposters robbing a bank Now it's actually uh, Eunice the Untouchable and Blob In Ursat's X-Men costumes And hey, uh, you remember that one letter hack a few episodes ago Who complained that the X-Men's costumes are a little too loose Beasts in particular You remember that guy and how we kind of made fun of him? Well, I'm starting to think maybe that dude was right (laughs) Because the costuming all throughout this issue looks a little bit off Starting right here with the Blob's gear, um, total potato sack. Total potato sack, and it'll, uh, it'll only get worse. Anyway, Eunice brandishes a baseball bat and threatens the overly crowded bank with it. So, uh, I guess it must be the first of the month or something, because there's a lot of fools in here. Now, Blob insists that the bank manager open the vault, but, alas, it's on a time lock and cannot be open until 10 a.m. Well, that's not near quick enough for our big boy, and so he... Just tears the vault door off the wall Which, of course, begs the question Why he didn't just do that in the first place Anyway They nab a big old cartoon bag of cash Complete with a, you know, giant dollar sign on it And by now the police have arrived And, uh, they Open fire On this crowded bank scene Which, you know, that's pretty dumb You know, especially Considering that Eunice has a force field And all the bullets ricochet off of it All over the place, probably killing many, many people And, I mean, I figure after you unload, like, one gun into Eunice And see, like, uh uh-oh, you know, the bullets don't penetrate And actually they they bounce all over the place and, and kill people Maybe you stop shooting at that point But no And also, I mean, the Blob is used to taking cannonballs to the tum So puny bullets don't even make a dent And they just kind of fall off of him So Blob walks over to one of the officers and just you know, calmly and casually takes the gun out of his hand and crushes it. Then Eunice pops his pelvis in their direction, which knocks them all down. It's uh, pretty academic from here. Blob and Eunice casually walk back to their car and drive off with all the loot. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, Cyclops has once again decided to uh, quit the team. And so he packs his belongings and leaves a brief farewell note. Now, he claims that he won't be back until he can be ridded of the menace of his cursed eye beams. Which... I mean, without him, what use would he be to the team, anyway? Oh, and also, he still has the hot pants for Gene, but dares not do anything about it until his eyes are fixed. Elsewhere in the mansion, the rest of the ex-kids are kind of lounging in the living room. Uh, Warren and Gene are reaching for the same book, but, uh, not in a romantic sort of way. Hank is studying. Studying what, exactly? Who knows? I mean, they're, they graduated. Uh, I guess this is just independent study. And Bobby is watching some television. When suddenly a news report interrupts Howdy Doody or whatever it was that he's watching Uh, The reporter reports that the X-Men have robbed a bank Now, Hank suggests that they make haste and inform the professor But Charles, who is in the midst of building an all-new, all-different Cerebro, already knows uh, Because he knows everything, you see Uh, Also, uh, Stan offers us an editor's note, which tells us that Cerebro has been down since issue 18, after Magneto done melted it. But in issue 19, Xavier mentioned that Cerebro didn't pick up on the menace of the Mimic, and was quite annoyed when Hank mentioned that Cerebro might have made a mistake. Oh well. Um, In any event, the all-new Cerebro pulls up the image of these new bank-robbing X-Men, and, uh, well, it's pretty clear that it's the Blob and Eunice the Untouchable. Now, Hank is frothing mad that Eunice is back to the evil antics, as he promised to go on the straight and narrow after he zapped and re-zapped him back in issue number eight. Now, Hank also mentions that they still have that ray gun that he used on Eunice back then. So, hey, it does get mentioned again. uh, And already the era of the fan turned pro is starting to bear fruit for us, isn't it? So, Xavier warns that the Beast's ray gun might just be obsolete at this point, which uh, seems to me to be a little bit catty, so he's definitely still stinging from Beast's second-guessing the melted Cerebro last issue. Now at this point, Bobby runs in with the news that Cyclops has quit the team. Xavier's not surprised, I mean, considering he knows everything. He tells the gang that they can't worry about Scott right now, and then demands silence while he massages his temples to try to figure out who might be behind the blob in Eunice's antics. Because, clearly, Eunice and Dukes are far too stupid to figure anything out on their own. And as Xavier rubs his temples, many names go through his mind. The Vanisher. Juggernaut, who I thought was dead. Magneto, who, I mean, the stranger is still chasing him all over the place. Mastermind, uh, who is... I thought it was still a statue somewhere in, somewhere in the mansion? Uh, the Sentinels! <laughs> yes, it was the Sentinels behind it, those robots. Uh, and also Submariner, because why not? It's unsurprisingly, none of the above. Now, whoever it is, however, is a, well, they're using a mental screen in order to keep the prof out of their head. Now, Xavier decides that their best course of action is for him to build a mechanical memory inducer, which will somehow bust through the baddies' mental defenses. Why not just use the Mento helmet? It's already there, right? Oh well, now Jean will remain with him to work on it But all she can do is think about Scott And fret over whether or not she'll ever see him again Now the rest of the fellas, they're going to go track down and confront Eunice and the Blob And Beast, he's even going to bring that ray gun that he used back in issue 8 From here, we shift scenes to a top-secret laboratory Where uh, we meet our big bad And, uh, well, it's Lucifer I don't think that's too much of a sock rocker, considering the cover and the name of the issue, right? It's going to be Lucifer. Anyway, we learn here that Eunice and the Blob are unwittingly doing his bidding. They're making it seem as though the X-Men are to be feared and hated, despite the fact that they are already feared and hated. Oh well. Uh, Anybody want to know how Blob and Eunice first met? Because uh, we're about to head into flashback land regardless, so I suppose it really doesn't matter. Now you see, Eunice was doing his uh, pro wrestling gimmick. You know, doing that thing where he's uh, challenging people. So he, there's a big banner up saying if you can last in the ring with him for three minutes, you get a hundred bucks. Well, in the crowd, we got the blob and his manager, and they decide to take on the challenge. I mean, they could use a hundred bucks. That's like seven million dollars in today's money. And so we get several panels of mutant-on-mutant action. During which, our baddies realize that they've got a fair amount in common. And so, they decide to head out to a romantic candlelit dinner, and they decide, via Luciferian influence, that they'll put on some X-Men costumes and rob banks. Because, I mean, that's just academic. Back to the present. Blob and Eunice are at it again. They're robbing an armored car this time. And it just so happens that civilian Scott Summers is there to see it happen. Now, he's there, and he's conflicted. He hems and haws a bit, claiming that, uh, you know, this ain't his problem anymore. Until a bunch of looky-loos start disparaging the good names of the X-Men, at which point he decides to change into costume and confront the bad guys. Now, quick-thinking Eunice acts like Cyclops is their old buddy, old pal, and Blob asks him for a hand in lifting the loot. Cyclops zaps the money bag, and Eunice once again thinks on his feet... And accuses Cyclops of just being jealous that he wasn't chosen to lead this particular heist Our boy then zaps a light pole Which, I mean, vandalism is a great way to get the public on your side, right? You know, endangering people, making the town look really, really crappy It's a good way to, uh, to win people over Anyway, Eunice and Blob play this up as though it's an act by Slim to confuse the rubes And so, those same rubes decide to mob up and chase Cyclops away now, Lucifer is watching this all play out, and, uh, well, he's a little disappointed because it's only one legit X-Man here, or I guess former X-Man, that bit the bait. You see, he needs all of them to show up to enact whatever the hell his plan is. Then, just like that, Angel, Beast, and Iceman show up. Now, you remember a few minutes ago when I, we talked about the potato sack costumes? Well, it's here where it really begins to offend the eyes here. We've got the Beast, Right. But by looking at him here, you would think it was the blob in his X-Men costume. Um, The only way we know that it's Hank is that A. he's not chomping on a stogie and B. he's carrying that ray gun from X-Men number 8. That's the only way we know it's Beast. Well, he proceeds to blast Eunice with it, and just as the professor said, it don't work no more. Turns out that Lucifer did... something that made it so Eunice would be immune to the ray's effects. Uh, we probably shouldn't think about it too hard, because it really... I, I, I don't have a... I can't no-prize my way out of this. And so, it's time for a fight. Not only do the X-Men fight the evil mutant ex-impostors, but, uh, well, they've also got to deal with the looky-loos and the cops. Now, Beast gets clobbered over the head by an old woman's umbrella, and an officer opens fire at Warren as he flies overhead. It, it's quite the raucous scene here. It's almost as though Blob and Eunice are... Are just, you know, just there. You know, they're not really dealing with anything. Just then, Cyclops returns and blasts the ground beneath Eunice and Blob's feet. And this takes us into dig dug mode, you know, like the cross section where we can see everything underneath. And we can see that the baddies fell plumb down into the subway below. And as luck would have it, they landed right on a passing by train and they're whisked away to God knows where. And this will be the last we see of them today. The ex boys then head back to reconnoiter with the prof. And all the way, Cyclops only wants to know what Gene's up to Back to Lucifer Now he's annoyed that the one member of the X-Men he's actually after hasn't shown his face yet He then looks to the ceiling of his lab to reveal that his Mento Wave receiver Has indicated that Professor X has managed to penetrate his mental screen And so, from the southwestern mesa that his lab is hidden under He raises a goofy-looking and uncircumcised cannon. Um, Now, this blasts all the way across the continent, and with pinpoint precision, well, it uh, levels the Professor in his dome, rendering him completely paralyzed. So he can't move his head, he can't think really well, he's just kinda stuck within himself. Now, Jean sees him seize up, and she freaks out, so she uh, gets up close, listens to his chest, to make sure that the Professor's heart is still beating, which I'm sure gives Charlie quite the thrill. Now, he psychically advises her to use his mental wave amplifier so that they can telepathically communicate. He's, you know, he's, he's like at a, at a whisper, a telepathic whisper here, so she needs this extra device in order to amp up the sound here. Now, it's here that the professor decides it's time to inform Gene that Lucifer is their big bad. And also, while they have a few minutes, he decides that he's going to share the secret origin of his first meeting with Lucifer and also how he lost the use of his legs. So... Back into flashback land we go We go back to Xavier's journey across Tibet Where he became fascinated with a mysterious walled city Now he attempts to enter this walled city But the guards inform him that outsiders are forbidden So Xavier mentally coaxes them to gain access But while he does so He notes that their minds are currently being dominated by yet another Hmm Now once inside the ruler of this walled city Lucifer immediately takes notice, and he decides to monitor all of this outsider's movements within the city Xavier chats up many of the locals, who seem far friendlier than you might imagine a walled-in society to be Charles asks for an audience with the leader of the place, but is told that would be impossible You see, not even the walled-in citizens are allowed to lay eyes on him Xavier is later escorted to the ruler's castle and has a telepathic look inside revealing that this guy's got all sorts of alien technology stored within. Now, this tech allows the tyrant to control the minds of several movers and shakers of the city, which keeps everyone else compliant and in line. And so, Xavier finds himself falling in with some subversives, with whom he's able to foment a little bit of a rebellion. Now, they meet up, and Xavier attempts to pitch them on a full-blown insurrection. The locals aren't quite sure. Until, during their powwow, an attempt is made on their lives A chandelier is cut and nearly crushes the lot of them as it crashes down to the table Now, the attempted assassin is captured by Xavier and the gang, uh, which all but seals the deal The rebel uprising will storm the tyrant's castle and take back their city for the people Naturally, the castle is booby-trapped to the hilt So also, naturally, Xavier is able to sidestep all of the traps, because uh, Xavier is very, very cool. Deep inside the castle, we see Lucifer making contact with the Supreme One via a gigantic monitor. Now, the Supreme One looks a lot like Lucifer, only with a green onion helmet instead of Lucy's own purple onion helmet. Turns out that Lucifer is an alien, and he works under an even more powerful alien in... The Supreme One I guess Lucifer is like Agent One Or something like that Xavier catches this communique And confronts Lucifer Lucifer responds by Dropping a tremendous brick On Charles's back Which is how he lost the use of his legs Lucifer then escapes through a portal Or something like that uh, Back in the present Xavier wraps up his story And he claims that the Lucifer incident Was one of the main reasons That he decided to found the X-Men In the first place Let's hop back to Lucifer now, He reveals to us that his mental influence has managed to take over much of the world at this point Or I guess it could potentially And so he calls in to the Supreme One to give the thumbs up on sending in Dominus Who or what is that? Huh, well, we'll find out next time and uh, prepare to be whelmed uh, Back to the school The ex-boys return and they find Xavier in his catatonic state Beast is immediately put to work crafting a helmet to protect the prof from Lucifer's mento cannon thingy. And so, two panels later, Xavier is fitted with a bubble helmet, which returns him to normalish. Now, he informs the team that they're headed to the southwest. And uh, Jean is just happy that uh, she could take the geek helmet off here. She's still wearing that amplifier deal. And uh, Scott tells her to shut up, which uh, she will pout about uh, one panel later, wondering why he was so short with her. But who knows? We wrap up with the gang packing as though they were leaving on a six-month vacation, and then loading into their brand-new X-Plane, which literally takes off from Charles Xavier's garage, because, uh, yeah, Charles Xavier and the X-Men have no association, remember that. And, uh, we are out of here. Next episode, for better or for worse, Dominus. So, what do we think about Roy Thomas's first issue on X-Men? Um... I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know if I was expecting, like, a huge tonal shift here. Um, it's been a long, long time since I've read these. I feel like most of my uh, X-Men rereads have uh, kind of petered out somewhere within the first 10 to 15 issues. So the books we're reading right now, and we'll be continuing to read for the next little while, are uh, are wholly unfamiliar to me. I've, I've, of course, read them maybe once, maybe twice, but... Um, these aren't the ones that I come back to over and over again when I try to, uh, you know, rediscover some of the uh, classic X-Men stories here. Which, I mean, that's no indictment on on Roy or the stories. It's just uh, the way I do things. It's probably why, like, I've probably played through the first disc of Final Fantasy VII, like, a hundred times and really didn't go much further than that. So it's, uh, you know, one of those things that you just do every once in a while. You start off and you're all excited, and then it kind of just wears off, and then you're uh, distracted by any number of other things here. So this is, like, the first time I'm reading this in a very, very long time. And, uh, well, it it didn't feel all that different from the stand stuff, other than the fact that it feels like Roy is um, making a real effort to... Include bits and pieces of continuity here Uh, I would figure if there were a usenet or a social media back in 1965-1966 the little X-Men corner of it would be like Hey, anybody remember uh, Beast's ray gun that messed with Eunice's powers? I wonder what's going on with that I wonder if that's still around And uh, here we are in Roy's very first issue Mentioning something that happened, you know, 12 issues ago It's, uh I mean, there are a couple of different ways we can look at it, right? It's a good thing, and it's a bad thing in a way. Um, it's good in that, you know, all of us uh, very anal fans will be like, oh, we're we're getting a mention of this again. That's great. we're We're not forgetting where we came from. Things will be consistent. But then I suppose an argument could be made that uh, it makes the books a little bit less um, accessible to a new reader here where and I mean, this is a very silly example because it's a gun. You know, it's just a ray gun that they basically explained everything it did. But it's kind of an indictment on the direction uh, that the comics industry will eventually get to, to the point where just a decade and a half later, people will be complaining that uh, books like the X-Men that turn into families of books are just impenetrable, like just so labyrinthine in its lore that uh, a new reader could never hope to... uh, to figure it all out unless they really, really put in the effort. And even if they do, um, they, they might not find that the, uh, the destination was worth the journey to get there. And again, yes, this was just a ray gun. <laughs> so uh, I'm definitely uh, thinking about this way too hard. And I've got, we, you know, we've got so much hindsight. It's easy to see that this is just like tipping the first domino in uh, the self-referential nature of, uh, of American comics going forward the uh I think it's the uh, John Byrne forums where he really kind of regards the this era uh, the fans turn pro era as when everything started to kind of meld into the uh, the comic book world that we that we know and uh, many of us love many of us tolerate and some of us uh, despise I tell you one thing I am definitely looking forward to uh, reading some of the Upcoming letters pages to see how folks uh, Glom onto this, and Like I said, I haven't read these things in a while So I'm not sure if it's going to get Even more like this, where Roy's just going to be peppering in bits and pieces of lore In every issue, or if this is just a Hey, you know what, I had a question About this ray gun, so uh, Hey, let's answer that question in this uh, In this issue, but We're definitely far too young in the Roy Thomas run, this is only the first 20 Pages of his run, so I'm not going to say much more about it here. uh, I'm I'm sure we'll be talking much more about it in uh, coming episodes here. One thing I was definitely hoping for with the Roy Thomas run was that uh, maybe a little bit less emphasis on the professor. And it doesn't look like it's going to be that way, uh, at least not at the offset. I'm pretty sure later on there will be... Kind of a curveball thrown at us, and we'll we'll get there when we get there. But uh, even that will <laughs> come back around to being a very uh, Professor X is the coolest hero sort of a scenario. What else we got here? Um, well, Scott Summers' short stint away from the X Men. Uh, his uh, his time away lasted about. Three or four pages, which, I mean, that's his record at this point, right? That's the longest he's been away from the X-Men, though he's uh, threatened to leave a couple of times before. And this might just be my mangled memory here, but I think this is going to happen a few more times between uh, between now and uh, the end of the original 66 issues. I think he's going to threaten to leave or leave or step away for a minute or threaten to step away for a minute. I, I think this is just going to be a thing, and I, I could be completely wrong, but... Uh, Whenever I think back to Cyclops' time during the original 66 issues, it's always him quitting. It's always him lamenting the fact that he has the curse of the optic blast and uh, threatening to quit, and finally tracking down a doctor who can help him control his powers or just do away with them, you know, completely. We've got the return of some bad guys here, Blob and Eunice. Uh, Can't say that I was uh, missing them all that much. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, they're as good as any. I, I don't really remember why Lucifer... Needed them to do what he did I also don't know why he wanted to uh, To get the X-Men I, I really don't remember any of that It doesn't seem like it's It doesn't seem like it was well thought out Because I don't know that it'll actually matter At the end of the day But uh, I suppose we'll get there when we get there um, Overall, I mean, this is an important issue As it's the first Roy Thomas issue uh, We still have Stan getting top billing Which is, you know, understandable Since Stan is the recognizable name to the fan of the day, and they might uh, they might not feel comfortable reading something without Stan's name in the uh, front and center. So we'll accept that, I suppose. Um, as for uh, Werner Roth's work here, uh, nothing stood out to me as being particularly good or bad. So uh, that's that's a good thing, I think. It was just kind of there. I was able to enjoy it for what it was, and nothing really stood out as being like, Oof, you know, that's a that's a weird face. So uh, that's a win. That's a win. But uh, I think that's all I have to say about it. Uh, mostly because. Uh, My mouth is getting very, very tired, so um, I'm just going to reel this portion of the program in so we can hop into the back matter, and we will start with the letters page. Now, we're going to start with Peter in Ontario. Now, he claims that he did not heed Stan's advice on the cover of X-Men number 17. Now, if you remember, there was a little blurb on that cover that said, Do not reveal the ending to anyone. Well, Pete... He told a little old lady what the reveal was, and of course that reveal was the return of Magneto. And he says no longer did he say this, then he was arrested and beaten. Now, he only got out of jail by promising to buy the officers the next issue of X-Men. So, uh, I guess that tells you that bribery will get you everywhere in Canada. Next up, we got Jerry in Indiana. Now, Jerry feels that the art has improved since the X-Men went monthly, which is to say since Jack Kirby stopped drawing it. Now, he loved issue 16, considers Cyclops his favorite, and he says that he loves the, quote, trinket stuff. Trinket stuff. Now, Stan replies by asking other readers if they have the foggiest friggin' idea what trinket stuff Jerry's going on about. So, maybe in the upcoming issues, we'll find out what the trinket stuff is. Hmm, if, if anybody knows, uh, as soon as I finish designing the fake-ass no prize, I'll, I'll send you one. Uh, next, Dick in California... Now, he likes the new corner box that appeared on X-Men number 17's cover. He refers to Magneto as Lodestone Lips, which uh, makes me think of Magneto's mouth hanging around Skywise's neck over an elf Elfquest. He's looking forward to seeing Iceman save the day. Which, well, about that. Uh, well, Dick, uh, how would you like uh, Xavier saving the day again instead? Because uh, that's what's going to happen. He says that he'd love to be a comics creator one day, and he says that Marvel are the most casual comics out there. They can speak to the adult reader honestly and not talk down to them. To which Stan says, thank you. Guy in California. And hey, we've already heard from Guy in California. He uh, basically has the same letter he wrote last time, wherein he spends several paragraphs to explain why his only thought about the X-Men is, wow, He says the Magneto reveal at the end of X-Men number 17 was the single biggest thrill he'd ever received from a comic book. And, well, in fairness, we are several years away from Cherry Pop-Tarts, so what are you gonna do? He says the X-Men are the best because they have the best villains. Dean in Georgia. Now, he suggests that X-Men is the best Marvel comic since Amazing Adult Fantasy. He's happy Magneto's back, but doesn't want to see him in every single issue. He wants him back like every fifth or so issue. He thinks that'd be grand. And he wants to see him fight the Avengers as well. Now, while he's happy Magneto's back, he does not want to ever see the Toad again because he, uh, he acts like a pig. Now, he wants more of the Scott and Jean romance, and he wants Angel to find a girlfriend that isn't Jean. Now, he thought that the Angel pin-up in issue number 17 was the best pin-up he'd ever seen, which tells me it was probably the only pin-up that Dean in Georgia has ever seen, because it was not great. Next up, FR in England. Now, he thought American comics were drivel until sampling X-Men and Sergeant Fury, and he said that they were quite entertaining. Now, Stan writes back to thank him for finding their drivel to be entertaining. So, really good Stan answer. Nick in New York. Now, he loves that Magneto's back, though he mentions that it wasn't too much of a surprise with all that lead-up, and he wonders why Iceman didn't revert to his non-iced form while unconscious. Now, Stan comments about Iceman by stating that he's going to try to wriggle out of answering that question for now, so I'm guessing that that's a definite no-prize bait. Next up, Frank in Brooklyn. He joined the MMMS, and he has regular dinners with Irving Forbush, but, well... He's got some complaints about Marvel here. He thinks the Marvel printing process sucks. He wants Marvel to stop playing musical chairs with its art teams. And he wants Stan to grow a pair and name some names here. He's tired of the brand ECH talk, and he wants him to actually say DC or National. He wants wants names named. And uh, he wonders how the Sentinel TV studio stayed down after Xavier and the police removed the giant crystal off that building. Now, that's a good question, and it was one that I didn't feel like asking myself when we discussed that issue. Now, Stan says that that Sentinel was under the command to collect Trask, which at that point had already been done. Pretty good answer, right? Well, you know, if you think about it, uh, that Sentinel was fighting the X-Men after Trask was captured, so uh, I guess whatever. Now, Stan says that he uses brand Ech to name all of their competitors, since there are more... Competitors than one out there So he doesn't name names because he hates all of them And thinks they're all crap So, good enough answer Next, Doug in Jersey He loved issue 17 And he wants Marvel Collector's Item Classics to continue And maybe have themed issues Like maybe one month it's all Fantastic Four stories The next month all X-Men The next all Thor and uh, on and on and on Uh, Stan thinks that might be a good idea Gary in Illinois He, oh boy He wants to see the Marvel superheroes as a baseball team. And uh, yes, he went on to uh, list all of the positions that he would give them. And uh, let's do it. Let's do it. First base, Mr. Fantastic. Second base is Daredevil. Third base is the Human Torch. Shortstop is Spider Man. Right field is Hulk. Left field is Iron Man. Center field is Angel. The pitcher will be Thor. The catcher will be The Thing. Their manager is Professor X, and their water boy is Namor. They've also got some cheerleaders, because we do have girls, right? Uh, We have Sue Storm, Marvel Girl, and uh, Aunt May. You want to see Aunt May in a flouncy skirt? Yeah, me either. Uh, Now Stan writes back to say that Irv Forbush is crying because he had his heart set on being the Bat Boy. Now, I mean, if anybody out there has a vast collection of Marvel action figures and, like, some sort of a uh, grassy setting you could put them on, I, I would love for you to recreate this team for us here. That'd be, uh, that'd be fantastic. But that will do it for the mail. Uh, let's hop into the bullpen page here, and we will start with the how-about-that department. Now, how about this? People can't get enough of Marvel's collector's item classics. And so, Stan's gonna launch Marvel Tales as a bi-monthly to alternate with it in the same vein So one month you'll get collector's item classics, the next month you'll get Marvel Tales So, I don't know what it costs to put out a reprint book, but uh, it's I guess it's like free money-ish, right? It's You don't gotta pay a writer, or I guess you don't gotta pay yourself to, to do it Next up, news item Radio disc jockeys love Marvel, and uh, Stan's got the receipts to prove it By listing a whole lot of radio DJs who claim to love Marvel And, uh, well, let's do it Let's see if I can stumble my way through this Uh, Paul Drew from uh, WQXI Atlanta Jerry G from WKYC Cleveland Arnie Ginsberg from WMEX Boston Russ Knight from KILT Houston Steve Nicolette from KPOI Honolulu Pat O'Day from KJR Seattle Dick Purton from WKNR Detroit Johnny Rabbit from KXOK Lost, I'm sorry, St. Louis, Lost Louis. Nah, that's not right at all. Joey Reynolds from KBQ, KW, KBW, see, I'm telling you, I'm stumbling here. Buffalo. Art Roberts from WLS Chicago. Rick Shaw from WQAM Miami. And Gary Stevens from WMCA New York. So, hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad here. The letters just started jumbling up in my head. Let's head to the Did You Know department. Federico Fellini popped by the bullpen for a visit on November 3rd, 1965. Now, Fellini, he released eight and a half a couple years prior and took an American tour of sorts. He would tour Disneyland with Walt Disney back in 1963, and then a tour of the Marvel bullpen with Stan Lee in 1965. So that's uh, pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? And uh, maybe gives Marvel a little bit more uh, legitimacy in that a famous foreign filmmaker is a uh, fan of their work, or at least showed up for a tour. Uh, strictly personal department It's a big reveal here Adam Austin is really Gene Colon Why they changed his name? Uh, they do not really say News item Spider-Man guest starred in Daredevil number 16 Under the pencils of Jazzy John Ramita. And the wrap-up here Now this <laughs> This is where Stan gets a little salty He mentions how some Marvel fanatics Call them out on being disrespectful Toward their competition And we did just see that in the letters page, right? So Stan is gonna explain why he do that Now you see, for years Marvel has tried to upgrade what it means to be a comic book Trying to make it like a legitimate art form And uh, Stan goes as far as to say he doesn't hate the competition In fact, they actually welcome competition But, and we'll just quote Stan here, we'll let him say it Quote, we do resent shabby Carelessly produced, badly written and drawn Consciousless Consciousless Imitations of our Marvel mags Imitations which are callously lacking In quality and which are produced For the sole purpose of making a fast Profit in the field which they themselves Are helping to keep at the bottom Of the artistic totem pole Stan goes on to spend another Several hundred words talking about how Cluttered the newsstand racks are with garbage Which I mean replace newsstand with LCS shelf and he could be talking about today (laughs) You know, the big two and L Let's include the indies too A lot of indies, they're putting out a ton of trash here. They're just trying to push each other off the racks By putting out They're just trying to flood it They're trying to flood it, I guess it's Same as it ever was I mean, do you want uh, seven or eight Batman books a week That all contradict one another? Sure, why not? It has the Bat logo on it Just buy it, you're gonna buy it anyway Just do it but I want to hear from uh, you all here about Stan's thoughts here about the competition here And even if we relate it to uh, to the more contemporary uh, direct market, the comics market of today here Now we talked a little bit about this in uh, earlier episodes here But uh, there's been a lot of revisionist history done on Stan over the past, you know, 20, 30 years or Probably even before that, but I've only been around for the past 30 or so uh, in the fandom But you know people like to uh some people not yeah you know, i don't want to make this a blanket statement by any means but uh i think they view stan as a guy who is in the right place at the right time a guy who never really wanted to be in comics and uh as such just uh used other people to get uh famous and i think that's very unfair of course we all have our opinions here we can all talk about you know we could put up the big pie chart here and see who created what and who who really has more of a claim to certain things here? Uh, Steve Ditko famously did the, uh, you know, a list of things that made Spider-Man what he is and then drew the picture of Spider-Man and said, okay, well, who, who created Spider-Man? You know, we, we could get into the nitty-gritty of that, but we won't. What we do want to talk about here, or at least what I want to talk about here, is the fact that whether or not Stan wanted to be in comics, whether this was his lifelong goal or not, he is putting forth an effort to make comics more than what they were. And again, this is all just my opinion. You can uh, agree or disagree, and either way, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. But here we have Stan trying to make comics more accessible and enjoyable and, uh, I guess, more palatable and more socially acceptable for people over the age of 10, right? These are the books that grow up with you, kind of. And he does mention here that some of the other companies are trying to do the same thing as Marvel, and... uh, Maybe they're not doing it quite as well. Maybe they're doing it a little too well in that they're, uh, you know, wholesale taking uh, what Stan has uh, has put into practice and uh, using it on their own. Now, quality, of course, is subjective here. It's uh, Nobody's going to agree on the quality of things uh, in most situations. There's always going to be someone who likes something that most people don't like, and whether that's due to an actual difference in opinion or playing devil's advocate, it really doesn't matter, right? It's just uh, quality is what quality is, and Stan... Feels that uh, Marvel does what Marvel does better than anyone else in the uh, market in the industry And uh, takes a bit of offense to uh, lazier work being put out in a similar vein And I mean, I think this is something that could be parlayed into any sort of uh, entertainment field, right? Uh, Quality levels insofar as movies, TV, music, even, you know, stupid comics podcasts (laughs) It's a... you know, when the Cosmic Treadmill was still, uh, doing what it did, uh, there were a few imitators out there of the Cosmic Treadmill that took what we did basically wholesale, um, and in our opinion didn't do it half as well. So I can totally see, uh, Stan being a bit perturbed. One of the letter hacks last time out said that someone in the distinguished competition used Stan's nuff said, which was basically all he needed to see to know that, uh, they were being <laughs> ripped off, and, uh... Yeah, I can. That's another thing I can kind of uh, sympathize with, as I've listened to some shows that uh, I've been able to actually read my script along with what they were saying because my words were coming out of their mouth. So I can totally get why uh, why this might start to get understand skin. And is this little missive caddy on his behalf? Uh, maybe, maybe it's it's entertaining, especially so many years removed here to see. This sort of uh, the genesis of this sort of playful rivalry, because I think at the end of the day, you know, comics creators—they're all friends. Doesn't matter what what company they work for; they all know each other. They're still in the same business. They're offering each other gigs. They're jumping across the street. It's you know, it's a small industry, so it's a uh, it's funny that uh, Stan can be a little spicy here, and I'm sure DC will uh, lob some salvos across the street as well in their letters pages. So. It's funny how it's the fans that seem the most offended when it's, uh, nobody's making fun of their work. (laughs) They're just there to put their, you know, their 12 cents on the, uh, on the newsstand so they can pick up their newest issue. So, I guess, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. People love to dig their heels in, choose their side. You know, Coke versus Pepsi, Marvel versus DC, uh, you know, PlayStation versus Xbox. It's, you, you invest in your side and, uh, Make it your mission to white knight and stand up for billion-dollar companies Who probably wouldn't pee on you if you were on fire <laughs> That's the way of the world, in it? But that's going to do it for the bullpen bulletins I, I do want to hear what you guys think about Stan's, uh, Stan's sassy little missive here And uh, where you fall on, uh, on the argument But before we get out of here, we do have the mighty Marvel checklist here we're going to start with Fantastic Four number 51, which is a story featuring The Thing. And this is a pretty famous story. It's This Man, This Monster, which actually we covered. Uh, we did a deep dive on during Cosmic Treadmill episode 73, which is available in the archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or, you know, anywhere the internet has noise. Spider-Man 37. Once upon a time, there was a robot. Okay. Avengers number 28, now this is the return of Giant Man, with a new costume and a new name. Anybody want to know the name? Well, it's Goliath. Uh, Daredevil number 16, guest star Spider-Man, as we heard during the bullpen. Thor number 128, Pluto faces off with Thor and... Hercules, of course, of course. Uh, Strange Tales 145 features S.H.I.E.L.D. versus the Druid. And Doctor Strange has a surprise up his sleeve. Tales of Suspense 76, Iron Man vs. Ultimo, still. And also Captain America's first meeting with Nick Fury. And let me see if I can say this right on the fifth take here. <clears throat> Tales to Astonish number 80, Submariner vs. the Behemoth, still. I, I, I've been saying like I've been saying like Submariner, I've been saying like Rick Moranis. I, I don't know what I'm saying here trying to say submariner. Also in that issue, Hulk vs. Tyrannus and the Mole Man. Sgt. Fury number 30, Howlin' in Sunny Italy. Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 3, Stan says buy it now, it's a surefire sellout. Finally, Fantasy Masterpiece is number 2, featuring more Golden Age goodness. We don't have any ads to discuss today, uh, they're mostly the same, and uh, house ads, I mean, how much can you say about a house ad? It's either going to be a cover that we all recognize, or uh, one that we don't, and that's really all I'll have to say about it anyway, so. Oh, oh, I almost forgot There are uh, 26 new members to the uh, Marvel Marching Society um, None of them stood out to me No, uh, no Dick Hurts the fourth So it's uh, just a bunch of folks Who uh, probably have some pretty nifty uh, Stationery and maybe a t-shirt or two But that'll do it for the book Let's hop into our own mailbag here We do have a letter from our friend Billy D. Talking about episode 25 He says, hey dude, I hope all goes well at the dentist I had some of that last year And it's the worst and first, yeah, thanks for checking in on me there. Um, it wasn't that bad, uh, what had to be done for me. Uh, I felt like parts of my mouth <laughs> were being stretched to the point where they would never, ever get back to, like, normal size. But, uh, by the time I was no longer numb, everything seemed to be, uh, where it belonged, where it needed to be. Um, still feel a little bit of, a mouth fatigue right now since I was, uh, you know, had my mouth held open for several hours. But, uh... No pain, you know, no real pain. No pain that's different from the usual, you know, head, neck, and mouth pain that I deal with every day. Uh, hopefully, when this is all said and done, I'll have far less of that. Uh, Billy continues, tell Beast to get to the back of the line. Uh, this is referring to a letter <laughs> letter that wrote in to uh, Stan saying that he wants to see the Beast spank Marvel Girl. Like, that was the whole point of his letter. I mean, I, I know we all have our fetishes, but... Uh, I don't know, we don't usually wear them on our sleeve like that. Now, Billy says, I'm sure Xavier would be the first in line to spank Jean, and I'm definitely the second. <laughs> I love the ads you spoke of, and I hope we do more of that sooner than later. And I hope so, too. I hope that some of the ads uh, stand out like those two uh, silly ones did here. Um, it's mostly house ads, unfortunately. And we do get those pages full of, like, like those, like, it looks like want ads, kind of. It's like 50 ads, tiny, tiny ads that are just like, you know Make money today, or uh, build muscles today, or build your comic collection today Stuff like that, so Those aren't too terribly fun to talk about, but I'm sure Sooner or later we'll get to some fun ones But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Billy And uh, we'll close out by presenting a fake-ass no prize Our buddy Dave rode in to take issue with uh, some of Stan's uh, missives in the bullpens last time uh, Stan claimed that down south of the border That La Mole was the Hulk Well, uh, Dave spent some time south of the border And could tell us that La Mole is actually the Thing Not the Hulk And uh, first thing I had to do was double-check Stan's writing To make sure I didn't just read it wrong And uh, no, I didn't So Stan done goofed He called the Hulk La Mole When it was supposed to be the Thing that was La Mole And so uh, I think that's worthy of Of a uh, fake-ass no prize I just have to finish designing A fake-ass no prize before I could send it out But uh, thank you so much for letting us know uh, About Stan's Spanish snafu But now that will finally do it for the show here If anybody would like to write in And maybe go for a fake-ass no prize I think we put out some questions Over the past several episodes here Because, uh, well, some questions need answering And I'm not sure we're going to get them from uh, Stan Or now Rascally Roy, so... If anybody wants to write in, try to get a fake-ass no-prize, or just say hello or talk about the show, I would invite you to do so. You can find me several different ways. First, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can pop over to chrissoninfiniteearths.com for blog posts and show notes, and there's a place there you can comment as well. Uh, speaking of commenting, Facebook, we have our little group, it's 90s X-Men, or 60-something members strong, having a good time chatting up all eras of X-Men comics in there, and I hope to see you there soon. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, as well as the full X-Lapsed family of shows archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for joining me on this essential journey, this might be the final episode for a little while. Hopefully, my uh, current year stuff will arrive at some point this month. Uh, it's a cursed package, it seems. This is as cursed as Cyclops's dread optic beams. Here, every time it says it's going to deliver, something happens. Something happens. There's a delay. A truck breaks down. It's uh, been a it's been touch and go all week. So hopefully. By the next time you hear from me, we will be talking about original Recipe X-Labs. But no promises. It very well could be the second part of this Dominus story, for all I know. But that'll do it for today. Thank you all so much for spending some time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going everybody, this is Chris Welcome to episode 28 of The Essential X-Lapsed Where, uh, we got us kind of a doozy today Um, uh, in putting together the, uh, the notes for this episode here I was reminded that, uh, our friend Jesse DeYoung had mentioned that He had tried getting through these Silver Age stories But always kinda stops around issue 20 or 21 And, uh, yeah, we're at issue 21 and I can totally see why somebody might put this down for a little bit And uh, maybe not even come back to it <laughs> These are, uh, this is going to be a doozy um, It is worth noting here that this is issue 21 and it's not the last issue of the volume Which, I mean, nowadays we we really don't get more than 20 or 21 issues for an X-Men volume, do we? It's a, kind of a sad state of affairs, but uh, yeah, it is current year after all Anyway, we got a lot to get to today, so let's get into the issue. This is X Men number 21, June 1966 cover date. The story is called From Whence Comes Dominus. Edited by Stan Lee, but credited first. Written by Roy Thomas. Pencils Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks Dick Ayers. Letters Artie Simic. Colors uh, The Bullpen, somebody, maybe. Uh, cover price 12 cents American. Now it has been a little while since we did an Essentials episode But if you recall We wrapped up with uh, the X-Men heading to Lucifer Okay, Lucifer has reared his ugly head again And, uh, well, that's exactly where we pick up here We open with the X-Men nearing Lucifer's southwestern mesa base When suddenly their ship changes direction Now Angel sees a blinding shaft of light in front of them Which Xavier assumes to be some sort of a force field Which... Well, maybe, kinda, sorta, yeah Um, Upon closer inspection, we can see that it's actually emanating from Outer space Now, within the shaft are massive shapes streaking downward As though they're being delivered from space to this mesa And the X-Men decide to back off to plan their next move Meanwhile, we meet Mr. Mac and his posse And they are your stereotypical goofballs from a nearby dude ranch Now, they too see this beam of light, and so, you know, they do what they do. They grab their rifles, mount up, and trot over to see what's up. You see, Mr. Mac is worried that something like this might drive customers away from uh, staying at their dude ranch. Which, I I mean, it could also mean the end of the world, right? But uh, whatever, let's just worry about the dude ranch. I figure, if anything, it's going to help business at a dude ranch just out of curiosity, you know. Anyway... It doesn't take long for the shaft of light to vanish Likely due to it having already done what it was supposed to do In, you know, making those deliveries Jean notices that there are wisps of smoke coming out of the top of the mesa Xavier informs her that they're actually opalescent Opalescent? However you say that word Opalescent gases Which he deduces are being used to conceal what's going on down below So, I guess we know which volume of the encyclopedia showed up at Rascally Roy's local grocery store this week, right? Opalescent gases, huh? Now, as the proto-blackbird flies over the mesa, the gases erupt, fooshing upward, nearly destroying the X-Men's craft. Now, this seals the deal for the professor that this has gotta be where Lucifer's hiding out. Um, you think? Right? Okay. Okay, so we know where Lucifer is, but how will our heroes get inside? Well, there's a nearby river that flows between the mesas and disappears into the underground. And the X-Men assume that this will lead them right to Lucifer's citadel, so they, they take the waters and they will get there. Now Xavier throws the jet onto into autopilot and deploys a go-buggy, which lowers all six of our mutant heroes down to a plateau. Xavier informs the team that they'll have to infiltrate without him, but... Not to worry, he'll still be monitoring them all mentally. And, you know, he'll probably step in at the very last minute in order to hog all the glory anyway, like he tends to do. Warren, bless his heart, is still worried about clearing the X-Men's good name. Which is something I almost forgot about. If you remember, Blob and Eunice posed as X-Creeps last issue and robbed a couple of banks. And so uh, the X-Men are kind of personas known gratis, if, however you say that, uh, in the eyes of the public. Okay, so, the X-Men make their way downward toward the rushing river, all using their uncanny powers to do so. Warren flies, Beast bounces, Kid Cool uses an ice slide, Gene TKs, and, uh, well, Scott just slowly climbs down the crags, uh, so can't win them all. Anyway, Mr. Mack and his men catch sight of the bizarre assemblage, and, uh, knowing that they are, you know, currently wanted folk on the East Coast, they decide they might just try and nab them, and take whatever reward monies might be coming their way. And so... they open fire. So, I guess we can assume that the X-Men are wanted dead or alive? I... I don't know. Uh, The X-Men wind up making short work of them all the same, and, I mean, that should come as no surprise. Uh, Gene lowers the brim on Mr. Mac's hat down over his eyes. Cyclops blasts a bunch of nearby rocks to bits as to pepper his men with pebbles. Then the posse, horses and all, fall into that nearby river. All but Mr. Mack, who finds himself encased in a giant ice cube and sent on his merry way. Now, I gotta wonder, I mean, the posse fell into the river, is it still rushing toward Lucifer's Citadel? Are they gonna wind up in Lucifer's place? I... I don't know. Anyway, with all that ridiculousness out of the way, it's finally time for the X-Men to make their approach to Lucifer's Citadel. And so, they load onto an ice raft and head for the river. They flow into a cave, but then a monstrous whirlpool appears from nowhere and yanks them all downwards. Meanwhile, back on the plateau, Professor X loses telepathic contact with his charges. And you see, this is why you never leave home without the Mento helmet. I mean, how how much trouble can it be to bring a damn helmet with you? Anyway, just then, he's apprehended by a pair of large green robots. He attempts to nail them with mental blasts, but... Unlike when he did the same thing to the Sentinels, it doesn't work. The big bots introduce themselves as agents of Dominus. Then they grab him and fly him into the Hollow Mesa. Now Xavier is equal parts frightened and excited. I mean, at least he'll be in position to steal all the glory for himself at the end of the issue now, right? Uh, the Professor is then deposited right before Lucifer. And it's a full-page spread. And as with all of Werner Roth's full-pagers at this point, uh, it's not all that spectacular. We can see whatever machine Lucifer's working with, and it's quite the mishigas here. we got monitors, stairways, dials, levers. It's like as though Jack Kirby kind of just threw up on the page. Um, Anyway, Lucy explains that this machine is known as Dominus, and with it, he will enslave the entire world. Meanwhile, we rejoin the X-Men. First, Warren is able to fly out of the grasp of the whirlpool, but then he realizes that he should probably head down anyway to try to help his team out. Once down below, he finds Cyclops holding a swooned Marvel girl trying to escape the rushing underground waters. Warren gives them both a hand, lifting them out of harm's way. But just then, the trio find themselves encased in... Say it with me, a glass box. Where do all these villains get their glass boxes? I feel like the X-Men have been put in glass boxes like four times at this point. Naturally, all three of these X-Men are powerless against it, so they're stuck. Elsewhere, we catch up with the beast, who, while attempting to make his way to dry land, is nabbed by a pair of big green robots. Just then, Bobby arrives on an ice surfboard to try and save the day. And that reminds me, did I ever tell you how I used a uh, Silver Surfer action figure as my Iceman back when I was a kid? You know, when the X-Men figures came out, Series 2 had this really cool Iceman figure, and people of my vintage probably know the figures, you know, you can kinda see through it, it's kind of opaque. It's it's really, really cool. And it came with an ice slot, and it was just the coolest thing, but I couldn't find the damn thing anywhere. And our guy at the comic shop told us that uh, this figure is actually rare. So we probably wouldn't be able to find it anywhere, and if he were to get one in the store, he'd probably mark it up in price, since, you know, it is rare. So after many months of not finding it, and coveting it <laughs> very much, I decided to just buy a Silver Surfer figure. And he came with a surfboard, naturally, which I figured could be used as an ice slide. And, uh, you know, while he was silver and not, you know, sort of see-through, I figured it was close enough. And, of course, I remember finding the Iceman figure like a week after shelling out the five bucks on the Silver Surfer. So, Silver Surfer just sat in the box, unused. Anyway, now Bobby cracks his surfboard over one of the bot's backs. Then Beast bounces off its belly, opening up the opportunity for them to escape. Unfortunately for them, they run face-first into a metal wall that dropped down right in front of them. And, uh, I think we could probably make an X-Men Villains bingo card at this point. You know, glass boxes, gimmick walls. And I figure if Warren slips and falls into a net before the end of the issue, we'll have the trifecta. Let's head back to Lucifer, who has watched all of this play out on one of his many, 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 many monitors. And Xavier, while he's still unable to get into Lucifer's head, he figures if he can keep him talking long enough, he might just be able to deduce a way to beat him. And so he lets Lucifer drone on for several pages about his plan. You see, Lucifer's people created Dominus, the ultimate machine. Then they created the big green robots to operate it. Now, this machine included a gigantic, circumcised cannon that erupts from underground and produces rays that enslave the people of whatever planet they were currently on. Lucy Giddily shows Xavier some footage of a planet that they'd already enslaved, and uh, we see some human-looking folk working in a mine, because that's what enslavement is all the time. Now, Xavier is shocked that this is Lucifer's plan, While at the same time, he says that he knew it would come to this when he first encountered the baddie a decade prior. So, uh, which is it? I don't know. Okay, let's head back to the box. Now, Cyclops and Jean try using their respective powers on the box, and of course it doesn't work, because it never works. I mean, they should know this. They've been locked in boxes several times to this point. Anyway, the green machines then drag Bobby and Hank into the room and are about to deposit them into the box as well. Uh, haven't we read this one already? I I feel like I was just smacked with a little bit of a deja vu. What happens next is, uh, I mean, we've read this already. Cyclops goes to blast the bots just as soon as they open the box. And, uh, I mean, that's what happens. But first, Jean uses her telekinesis to flip the off switch on one of the 50 million nearby panels. Cyclops lets loose that blast right into the back of a bot, putting it down for good, or at least for now. It lets out a signal, which triggers Lucifer's bot brigade into attention. And Lucifer orders the bots to recapture the X-Men. But, by now, they've managed to escape into the Dominus machine. And, uh, the Dominus machine, if you remember, is a machine full of stairways and hallways and whatnot. It's basically a wall-mounted maze. It looks like it could be like a, uh, like a kid's game show. Like, where they've run around a set wearing, like, a Velcro vest, and they put them, put things on themselves, like prizes to, to you know, take home with them. It's... It's very much like that. Anyway, so here is where this already strange and uneven story becomes somehow even more so. So we got the X-Men, and they're in the machine, right? Now you might be thinking, you're in the machine, why not just wreck the thing, right? Tear the thing up, save the world, everything's great. Well, Professor X has ordered them not to. Which, if we stop and think about it... Seems to always be his advice in these sort of situations, and I'm pretty sure this is just so he can swoop in and save the day. But uh, you know, in any event, orders is orders. Okay, so the professor says no, but Warren wonders if this is Lucifer somehow mentally manipulating the professor to say this. Now, Xavier, it's worth mentioning, looks to be catatonic at this point, but I mean, he he always kind of looks like that. So Warren, he, he's all about tearing this machine to bits. You know, assuming that. This isn't really Xavier's thoughts However, Xavier's second-in-command, the field leader of the X-Men, Cyclops Won't allow him to defy their leader And so, we get a couple of pages of the X-Men arguing their next move Now, Gene telekinesis is Lucifer's cape over his head As though they were about to have a hockey fight So he won't be able to contact his green machines I guess? I mean, I don't know that he needs to, like, see to do that I, I don't know Then, Warren, he's tired of arguing. He's like, screw this, and he swoops over to begin tearing up the machine. At which point, Cyclops lets loose an optic blast, nailing Angel right between his wings. Now, Iceman worries that Syke's gone bad, and so he hurls a watermelon-sized ice block at him, which is deflected by telekinesis, so we know whose side Gene is on. Now, it looks like our opposing teams of X-Men are Scott and Gene versus Bobby, Hank, and Warren. Now, Scott comments that he only dazed Warren with that blast, so he should quit being a wuss, and he'll be fine in a few minutes. Beast begins to lecture the group on what they ought to do. He's certain that Lucifer is manufacturing all of this, and it would be in everybody's best interest to just destroy the damn machine. He is cut off, however, by the arrival of a green machine. And over the course of the next page or so, the X-Men handily defeat all of the robots. I wonder if Roy's realizing he's running out of pages. I don't know. Just then, the Supreme One calls in to FaceTime on Lucifer's giant monitor, one of his many monitors. Uh, the Supreme One is not pleased by Lucifer's failure and sucks him back to wherever the hell they came from in order to punish him. As it's happening, Lucifer pleads with the X-Men to save him, but they don't. So, as the dust settles, uh, well, just how in the hell did this all wind up ending so neatly? Huh, well, if you were a betting individual and you would have guessed that Professor X had something to do with it... Well, then you win the pony. You see, while the X-Men were arguing, and while Lucifer was posturing, Xavier managed to pierce the baddie's mental screen and caused him to command the green machines recklessly. So, our heroes really didn't do anything all that spectacular. It was all Xavier's doing. So, same as it ever was. Now, we wrap up with the X-Men returning to the proto-Blackbird and a blurb warning us that next issue will feature Count Nefaria. So, yeah, um... Hmm. This this was a tough read. <laughs> I I am not going to lie to you. It was very uneven. I feel like um like we spent way too much time at certain things and we glossed over other bits that might be a little bit more important to the, you know, overall story and the presentation here. Like I don't know why we needed so many pages with Mr. Mac other than just to remind us again that the X-Men are feared and hated. I it, it just seemed like such a waste. And on top of that, it feels like maybe Roy's a little uh Trepidatious about, like, going off formula For the X-Men book here Because this is, you know, same as it ever was, right? The X-Men do something They're, they're, they're unsuccessful They get locked in a box Then Professor X, at the last minute Comes in and saves the day In fairness to Roy, this is, you know Just his first two-part story So maybe he's, uh And maybe he's, you know, easing himself into it here Not wanting to deviate from uh, what came before All that much But it feels a little too... Been there, done that, and doesn't really leave us feeling satisfied. I mean, for each scene here, we could have cobbled this thing together from stuff that we've already seen in the past, you know, dozen or so issues. Uh, The only thing that was missing was Professor X sending the team on a vacation. (laughs) You know, which he does quite often. So yeah, I I don't really have a whole lot more to say about this that I haven't already said. I I didn't really care for it, and I doubt I will ever subject myself to it again. But I guess that's uh, kind of the for lack of a better term, the magic of the essential X-Labs. I'm reading these things so you don't necessarily have to. So, that's kind of all I have to say about this story. And uh, while the story is over, the issue's not. We do have back matter to get to, and this is some of the, uh... I think in this case, it'll definitely be more fun in the story. But let's get into it here. We're going to start with the letters page. And we're going to start with John in Ohio. Now, John didn't initially enjoy Warner Roth on pencils, but now considers him superb, and if I'm being honest, I kind of had the opposite reaction. I thought Werner Roth was kind of a breath of fresh air after so many issues of Kirby, especially as Kirby was, I don't want to say phoning it in, but maybe just overworked around the time of, like, issue 11 or so. You know, it was uh, it was kind of a sketchy issue. So when Werner Roth came in, it felt to me like a huge improvement, and now as we're getting used to him, its I'm starting to miss Jack a little bit. So it's a kind of an opposite reaction here from our, uh, our buddy John Now, speaking of the art here John especially liked the Magneto reveal at the end of issue 17 Which I definitely disagree with I thought that was a uh, very ugly page Now, John also includes a clipping from the Cleveland Press newspaper Written by Don Thompson, which talks up Marvel quite a bit Now, Don Thompson might be a name familiar to some of you He would go on to be the editor of the Comics Buyer's Guide in 1983 He and his wife Maggie already had a column in the Buyer's Guide for Comics Fandom, as it was called before Krauss Publications bought it, and they called it Beautiful Balloons, and that ran from 1972. Now, Don would pass away in 1994. Maggie would continue with CBG from there. Now, Stan replies to John that hundreds of Marvel maniacs had sent him Don's article, and Stan includes some quotes for us. Quote, The Marvel style is a fast-moving, dialogue-filled blend of slang and sophistication, which has won them a new group of readers, college students, and even some professors who relish the humor and the problems of Lee's super characters. And that certainly is something we could spend a lot of time talking about, how, uh, you know, the Marvel Age of Comics changed comics, uh, from, you know, Kiddie Fair to, uh, Something that adolescents and even grown-ups could get into here Probably the reason why so many of us are, you know, in the hobby right now uh, Is because of, I don't know if sophistication is the right I guess it would be the right word Because it is a little bit more mature than just, uh, you know, Superman punching a lizard man You know, these are characters with problems These are flawed characters, the the imperfects that uh, that you know populate the Marvel Universe. It's certainly something we can spend a lot of time discussing, and I'm sure we will as we work our way through this era. But the next uh, message comes from Gordon in Georgia, and he uses a lot of X words to explain Jay Gavin's extraordinary, excellent pencils. And uh, Gordon, on that we dis X um, Now He calls Stan out on misspelling his name in a letter column in the pages of Journey into Mystery number one twenty three. And Stan says he's extremely sorry, and a bit annoyed that Gordy didn't blow Sunshine up his skirt about the story, and only, you know, praised Jay Gavin. Next up, Sid in Michigan, who it's worth noting is writing in on Merry Marvel Marching Society Stationery, and he wants to know who drew the characters on it. He loves fantasy masterpieces, and he reads all of the Marvel books, and thinks that this ought to earn him a no-prize. I don't think that's how it works, Sid. You know, just reading the books isn't enough. Um, Now, Stan tells him not to worry about the no prize, and he should be more concerned with how much money he spends on comics every month. And that sounds a little counterproductive, and almost, uh... (laughs) It's almost like he's mocking in there. Stan then reveals that he's pretty sure that Jolly Jack drew all of, or at least most of, the characters on the MMMS stationery. Next up, Bill in D.C. He fell in love with Marvel over the summer of 63, which is uh, my favorite Bryan Adams song. No, He's totally deaf, which I'm not sure why that's relevant here. Uh, He did go to the world's only college for the deaf, which is Gallaudet College in Washington, D.C. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, He assures Stan that many people with his same handicap love Marvel Comics. Now Bill loves seeing the new mag show up at the drugstore in the newsstand and is beyond bummed out when he finds out that he missed an issue. Stan thanks Bill for reading, and also for informing him about Gallaudet College, which up to this point he'd never heard of, and neither had I. Uh, He wishes Bill the best, and even gives him a free subscription to the X-Men, so he doesn't have to ever worry about missing an issue again, which is a really, really cool move for Stan. Next, Guy in New York loved X-Men number 18. He enjoyed seeing a more serious side to Iceman, and wonders how Magneto suddenly became so much more powerful. Guy was not keen on the next issue blurb, however Which promised the introduction of The Mimic And, uh What's that thing if you assume you, you do something with something, right? He, he just makes an assumption here about The Mimic He assumes that The Mimic will be a master of disguise And says that this concept has uh, is kind of been there, done that Sort of thing in Marvel And he cites several characters here uh, The Skrulls in Fantastic Four number 2 The Chameleon in Spidey 1 and 15 Craven in Spidey 34 Red Skull in Sgt. Fury twenty five, Space Phantom in Avengers number two, and the Masquerader in Rawhide Kid forty nine and fifty. And uh, yeah, I mean, what do we what do we always say about assuming? Hmm. Now Stan responds in Stan fashion by just congratulating Guy on his extensive Marvel knowledge, which I mean, that's that's a Stan answer for you. And uh, he doesn't call Guy out on being wrong, so that's a good thing too, I guess. Fred in Colorado, he enjoyed X Men number eighteen. And he says that there was a panel featuring the professor that he thought was a bit corny. And it was the bit where Xavier concentrated the mental inhibitor gimmick off his head. And, uh, when I looked at it, I just called it ugly. But I suppose it was corny, too. Now, Fred says that this made Xavier look like, quote, a gibbering idiot. And I would like to add to that. It made him look like an ugly gibbering idiot. All's not bad, though. Fred loves Marvel covers and the titles of most of their stories. Stan replies by saying he's happy that there's something that Fred likes about the books. He just wishes it were the stories. Wonk, wonk. Uh, Next up, Charles in Texas. Enjoyed X-Men 18 and didn't mind seeing Magneto back. And he said it was nice seeing him use his brains rather than just his powers. Lewis in Georgia. Now, he thought X-Men number 17 was good, but not marvelous. You see, he judges a comic book by how much fighting is in it. And I'm guessing that Lewis isn't really keeping up with Marvel mags anymore Unless constant hero-on-hero hero fighting Roxas socks is really not a whole lot for him Now you see, X-Men 17 didn't have all that much in the way of fighting Now this, if you recall, was the issue that mostly consisted of Professor X loitering around the hospital Checking in on those costumed kids that he claimed not to know or be associated with Remember that one? Uh, now, Lewis wants the blob back Well, be careful what you wish for uh, he really enjoyed the Fantastic Four Galactus story And he wants to know who'd win in a fight The Hulk, Hercules, Spider-Man, or The Thing Is this the first time we got this que- or a question like this? Like, who'd win in a fight? I mean, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of that uh, as we move forward here But this might be the first time And Stan replies that Irving Forbush would win that fight um, He doesn't even mention the lack of fighting in issue 17 uh, Probably because Stan doesn't remember it Personally, I'd rather just think that Stan is, uh, you know, purposely not not engaging and, and not in, not interested in that criticism. Next up, Laura in Massachusetts. Now, Laura just knew Stan would bring Magneto back, and she wasn't happy to see him. She was happy that he was deep six after just the one story, though. She says the X-Men hit its creative peak with the Juggernaut and the Sentinel stories, and doesn't want to see the Mag backpedal into Magneto in the Brotherhood days. And Stan tells Laura that, you know what, you're supposed to hate Magneto. He is a bad guy, after all. Next up, Ken in California has five things to say, and they're numbered. So, I love these. I love letters that are numbered. Letters that are numbered, that's a weird sentence, isn't it? One, X-Men 17 had the second best cover he has ever, ever seen. His absolute favorite was Fantastic Four number 46, and Fantastic Four 46, by the way, features Black Bolt of the Inhumans front and center, so I suppose there is no accounting for taste. Two X-Men number seventeen had the best story he'd ever read. Wow. Okay. Uh, three. The first panel, the final panels of X-Men seventeen were the most dramatic he'd ever seen, and that is, uh, if I'm remembering right, that's where Magneto was uh, revealed as being in the mansion. 4. Page 4, panel 2 of X-Men 17 was the corniest he'd ever seen. And this one featured Professor X thinking to himself that Beast shouldn't remove his mask. I, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe these pages were numbered differently back in the day? I'm not sure why this panel stood out to Ken, but... Okay, I mean, so far we've got two of the corniest panels in that book. I don't know. 5. The November issue of the California Pelican was very interesting. Okay, now you might be thinking, just what in the hell <laughs> is this all about? Well, I did a little bit of research. The California Pelican was a humor-oriented magazine published by the students of UC Berkeley. Now, Volume 72, Issue 2 of said magazine was called The Far Out Issue, and it featured some Marvel content, including a cover which featured Spider-Man and the Hulk. In it, there's a five-page article by Bob Weeder called, quote, A Critical Analysis of Contemporary Pop Art... And then in parentheses, or, here's a whole bunch of stuff about comic books. It had a 30-cent price tag and a print run of only 7000 So if you've got a copy, consider yourself a true fake-ass comics historian. You can find them, I found some on eBay, but they were not available. So, I mean, they might pop up from time to time, and if uh, if you want to take a look at that, I, I'm going to keep an eye out for it. If I do find it, I will I will share all of it with, uh, with everybody. Finally, thanks, Stan, for the 12 Great Books a Month, and Stan thanks Ken back and wonders if one of those 12 monthly mags is Millie the model. Well, those are the letters. Let's head into the bullpen here. Now, we have uh, several bulletins. This is uh, written in a kind of a different way than usual. It's not like the, you know, in case you didn't know department. This is just a listing of uh, bullet-pointed bullet bulletins. And we start with a hail and farewell to Steve Ditko. Now, Steve is leaving Marvel for, quote, personal reasons. And as such, Amazing Spider-Man number 38 and Strange Tales 146 will be his final stories. Stan claims he's gonna miss him, and he wishes him every success in life. But, comics gotta keep coming out, so onward and upward. Jazzy John Romita will be taking over for Spidey, and Stan doesn't announce Ditko's replacement on Doctor Strange just yet. But, I mean, with the benefit of, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of years of a hindsight, I can tell you that it's gonna be Bill Everett. Bulletin! People are still gobbling up Marvel's reprint mags, Marvel Collector's Item Classics, and Fantasy Masterpieces. Stan announces that Fantasy Masterpieces will begin featuring Captain America's Golden Age exploits, most of which I gotta assume are gonna be brand new to uh, the current crop of uh, Marvel fans. Bulletin! Stan mentions the Marvel mentions in the UC Berkeley Pelican, and he makes sure to do so because uh, the last time he'd mentioned it, uh, he mistakenly attributed the mag to UCLA. So, whoops. Though, I mean, are there really any difference between California universities? I I couldn't tell you. Bulletin. Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four will be appearing in Lancer Paperback's collector's albums. Now, Spider-Man's 50-cent paperback will hit in 1966, and uh, we got some quotes on the cover, Pussycats. He's hip, greatest of the new breed of superheroes with super problems from the New York Herald Tribune. Quote, if Charlie Brown wore a skin-tight costume in fought Crime He would be Spider-Man from the Colgate Maroon Now these paperbacks are quite strange um, They're not collected editions the way we see them nowadays These feature clipped comics panels and look to be rather unpleasant to read Now, Spidey's album included material from Amazing Spider-Man 1, 13, and 16 And between the years of 66 and 67, Marvel would release six of these things and since I'm not sure we're ever going to mention these things again, let's, uh, let's go through them. In addition to Spider-Man, we got the Fantastic Four, which included material from Fantastic Four 1, 6, and 11. Incredible Hulk, which included material from Incredible Hulk 3 and Tales to Astonish 61 through 63. Thor, who is called the most dramatic hero in the world, which I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. Uh, the Thor volume features uh, content from Journey of the Mystery 97, 104, 114, and 115. The Return of the Fantastic Four with Submariner features Fantastic Four 33, 35, and Annual Number 2. And finally, Daredevil includes Daredevil Number 1, 3, and 17. Bulletin. We got the Fantastic Four introducing the Black Panther in issue 52. Spider Man is going to guest star in Daredevil issues 16 and 17. And Giant Man will be back with the Avengers, now using the name Goliath. Bulletin. Marvel mini-books are being sold in vending machines. And uh, they are not kidding with the name. These books are the size of a postage stamp, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, These mini-books would be sent out to MMMS members, and were also sold as cake decorations. I mean, there are pictures of these things online, and you can read them online, too. They're they're pretty crazy to look at. Uh, Six of these were made. Thankfully no X-Men issue because uh, being the completionist I am I would probably need to track that one down and I don't know that I'd be able to Uh, The ones they included were The Amazing Spider-Man, The Mighty Thor, The Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Sergeant Nick Fury, and finally Millie the Model Now the books were around uh, 50 teeny tiny pages each And like I said, you could find them and read them online They are quite a hoot They are very, very silly Bulletin the MMMS has thousands of members, including, and stop me if you've heard this one before, radio DJs. Hoorah. I mean, uh, they're really getting on the DJs, <laughs> being part of the marching society. Uh, finally, the wrap-up. Now here, Stan shares a letter that was written to him from a Mike in Massachusetts, and it addresses Stan's recent outbursts about uh, Brand Ech comics. Now, uh, Mike lambastes Stan for resorting to name-calling and needling the competition. He feels as though readers are tired of being hammered over the head with Stan's propaganda. And uh, I kind of disagree. I I couldn't disagree more. I I think Stan's gotten a lot of credit in this era for, uh, as we talked about, the sophistication of comics. And, of course, sophistication is (laughs) not a hard-and-fast statement, and uh, we all have the the prisms through which we view a statement like that. But, um... I think Stan has brought comics into, I mean, he brought it into colleges. He, he's, he's advanced the age of a comic book reader, keeping folks in the fandom for far longer than they would have been during the Golden Age and into the 50s. And when he sees, you know, the brand Ech brands trying to ape the Marvel style, well, he might feel like a little bit of a pr- proprietary ownership of, uh, you know, the Marvel method. I, I could see him being a little bit annoyed for sure. And it's always a gutsy move to address these sort of things in print. And, you know, and I think at the end of the day, Stan doesn't, he doesn't want to see companies go out of business. He wants to see the industry be the best it can be. You know. Now Stan, he asks the rest of the readers if they truly feel this way, and he says if they do, well, he'll never mention the competition again. So I think we can use our mutant abilities of hindsight to know how that informal poll uh, turned out. But those be the bulletins, let's head into the mighty Marvel Checklist. Fantastic 452 features the Black Panther. Spider-Man 38 has Spidey battle a batty new villain. Avengers 29 has Power Man, the Black Widow, and the Swordsman. Daredevil 17, Daredevil vs. Spidey. Thor 129 featuring... uh, Who else? Hercules. Uh, Strange Tales 146, Fury vs. Them, and Doctor Strange meets Eternity. Suspense 79, Iron Man faces disaster, and Captain America faces the Red Skull. Astonish 81, Submariner gone mad and Hulk fights a bunch of people. Sergeant Fury 31, Captain Sawyer is back in action, so, uh, I guess we can all rejoice. Fantasy Masterpieces number three, which features the beginning of the Golden Age Captain America reprints. Marvel Tales number three features Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man, and Human Torch. Finally, Collector's Item Classics number three features the Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, and The Watcher. So, uh... One of those things ain't quite like the other, huh? Well, that be the issue. Uh, Before we get out of here, let's head into the mailbag here. We're going to start with a message from our friend Joe Crawford regarding the Fantastic Four Annual Number 3 episode. He says, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, Chris. After this one, I wish you were covering every Silver Age book. Fantastic job. Until Franklin's a mutant again, make mine essential. And then in parentheses, uh, that could actually change, I guess, but you know what I mean. And yes, I certainly do, and I, I would not be surprised if Franklin does become a mutant again, and then demutanted, and then remutanted, and uh, so on, and so on. But uh, thank you so much for your kind words about uh, that episode. And it's funny you mention covering uh, more Silver Age stuff here, because uh, where we sit right now, I'm not exactly sure what the next episode's going to be, because... Uh, I wanted to make sure we finished the two-part Lucifer-Dominus storyline before I made the decision. We might be going straight into the next issue of X-Men, or we might be doing a uh, little side trip through Strange Tales to introduce the mutant menace of Mentalo, who makes his debut in a three-part Nick Fury-Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. story. And so I put that out there on a few of the uh, social media platforms if uh, if Mentalo warranted. A, uh, you know, a deep dive, or a semi-deep dive, I suppose, just covering stories that he first appeared in. Considering that he's, uh, he's not really an X-Men character, but he is a mutant, and, I mean, that's kind of the mandate of the show, is that we deal with all the mutant stuff. And, uh, of course, in the current year, Mentalo is a cast member in the SWORD book, and from some of the responses I got when I posed the question... Uh, This volume of Sword was when uh, Some folks actually met Mentolo And uh, they just assumed that he was You know, an X-Men character going back to uh, The long ago, so We might cover that, we might just mention it Uh, I've got both scripts written (laughs) I have the script written for The next issue of X-Men, and I have the script written For the Strange Tales one, so We'll see, though by now, if uh, you're Listening to this episode, I've already made the decision And I've probably already recorded (laughs) Whichever one that is, but uh I suppose we'll all find out uh, a couple of episodes from now uh, where we, which direction we're headed in. But thanks again for your kind words. Uh, the Fantastic Four annual was a very fun one to uh, take a look at, at least with an eye toward analysis. Um, just seeing what an important issue it was for the you know seminal Marvel universe. It's one of those odd books that makes me nostalgic for an era that I never even lived through. Next up, we got Jeremiah, who did some essential catch up. Jeremiah says, In the past week, I've driven to New Jersey and back for work. For the entire ride down and back, I listened to The Essential X-Lapsed, episodes 7 through 22. You can say that I continue to be lapsed on my podcast listening. Uh, Starting next week, I'll be back in the office three days a week and will be listening to podcasts for the commute. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to -to -to back-to-back-to-back episodes where you describe and analyze the earliest of X-Men adventures. I have no real intentions to go back and read these stories for myself, only because my reading pile is too large as it is. That's why I love the show so much. Through your show, I get a great understanding of the building blocks of the X-Men and, to a certain extent, the entire Marvel Universe. Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much for that, Jeremiah. This is, uh, like I said during the, uh, the uh, synopsis or the review portion of this episode, whichever it was, I- I'm very confused. I'm happy to read things so uh, not everybody has to. You know, Not that I'm you know, necessarily taking a bullet <laughs> or anything that serious, but uh, I do know Time's a premium. You know, time is certainly a premium. I, I I know that as well as anybody. I've got a stack that is, uh, uh it's not getting any smaller, my reading stack. It's, it's only getting to the point where I'm afraid it's going to uh, topple over and crush me. And so if I can lighten anybody's load through these episodes, that is uh, something I am more than happy to do. Jeremiah continues. While the stories are silly and fun, for me, I get so much out of them just getting to know where the comics I started reading in the 80s all the way back through today come from. I'm particularly glad to hear how you now have access to the bullpen bulletins and letters pages because they add so much to the context of the time when these stories were created. And for uh, folks who are new to the Essentials episodes here, uh, Silly and Fun was like the descriptor for (laughs) like five or six issues in a row because, yeah, these are Silver Age stories. There isn't always so much to say about them other than, you know, they were silly stories and I had fun reading them. You know, there really isn't... It's not like a, a Jonathan Hickman book. It's not like a current year Hoxpox post uh, Hoxpox title where yeah there are this symbolism and subtext and uh, stuff like that. Here it's just uh, silly and fun. And I tell you what, I am so happy that I was able to find the bullpen bulletins and the letters pages. Uh, I gotta definitely thank uh, Ed and Pat for hooking me up with those. Uh, they, I, they do add so much And while they add so much time to the preparation of these episodes it, It's funny, when I started the Essentials run I figured that these were going to be quick Yeah, when I started X-Lapse, I thought it was going to be quick I thought they were going to be in and out episodes 15-20 minutes a pop Bada bing, bada boom On to the next one And I mean, x laps usually comes in at anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes an episode Sometimes over an hour And, uh the essentials i thought we're going to be even quicker because i mean how much can you talk about with a silver age comic right so i figured those would be 10 15 minutes and i mean we just crossed 40 minutes on this episode and uh, we're not done yet you know um, and it's funny these scripts or the you know the notes that i take for the essentials episodes they have a lot of pages <laughs> i think the one that i'm doing right now has uh, well over 20 pages and it's just for one silly issue of x-men whereas a current year whereas like a current year Xlab script goes like 10 to 12 pages so yeah we get a lot of a lot of meat here and a lot of that does come from the back matter which is just an absolute delight to be able to visit and also share i, I think in a very crowded podcasting landscape that uh, that makes this show a little bit different than uh, than the others so Very, very happy to do it, and I feel like we're all learning so much about uh, these seminal years in the Silver Age and what the industry looked like and where it was headed. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun for sure. Now Jeremiah continues, Now for some of the things I liked best. Like half of the fans, I was getting tired of the Magneto and the Brotherhood story. I'm glad they introduced new villains, and at least as of X-Men number 16, have not brought them back into the books just yet. Well, by now, you know, <laughs> Magneto did come back for a very short stint. A, only one issue, so Stan was able to uh, control himself there. Jeremiah continues, I thought the two-part juggernaut story was very good. One of the best up to that point. I don't think I would have picked up on Cerebro pinging or not pinging on him if I were reading the book. I also liked that it was a two-part story, but I understand why it would be criticized back in the day. Now, what uh, Jeremiah is referring to is the fact that Cerebro, you know, the mutant detection machine, pinged When the Juggernaut showed up And the Juggernaut, of course, is not a mutant And it's interesting visiting that in 2021 As opposed to back in, you know, 65, 66 Because, just like Jeremiah said I probably wouldn't have uh, noticed anything weird about that back in the day But knowing now what we know And all the hindsight we've got And how, you know, people have been called out For suggesting the Juggernaut was a mutant incorrectly And in our current year Krokoan era I mean, one of Juggernaut's top Character traits is the fact that he's a human You know, he can't go to Krakoa because he's not a mutant So it's easy for us to comment on that now But back in the day, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would have uh, I would have missed it as well And Jeremiah mentions it being a two-part story Which doesn't sound like, a, like much nowadays, right? It sounds like just... It sounds like a short story compared to what we usually get But uh, it was kind of a risk back in the 60s To uh, run a story across a couple of books Because... Distribution was so weird and spotty back in the day This is something that uh, Reggie and I talked about During our uh, Direct Market episodes of Weird Comics History Where, like a newsstand Might know what the most popular comics are for their area And they'll say, okay, well I need Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man And then just send me whatever You know, fill in the rest So some months you might get X-Men Some months you might get uh, Sergeant Fury Some months you might get Green Lantern You just don't know. All you know is the ones that you made sure to ask for because, I mean, these were newsstands. They don't necessarily care which comics they get, uh, and the kids probably didn't care all that much either so long as they were getting, you know, the big books that uh, the newsstand made sure to order. So, yeah, if you found X-Men number, what was it, 12 and 13, I suppose. If you found 12 and couldn't find 13, you were out of luck. You didn't know how the story ended, or vice versa. If you were able to find 13 and not 12, you don't know how the story started. So it's a, it was a risk. It was a risk back in the day and uh, certainly open for criticism and we did see some of the letter hacks call stand out for it. So definitely a, a risk. But uh, you know, in hindsight, of course, we're looking at it with totally different eyes and in totally different uh, situations and uh, dynamics. So it's it's kind of hard to put ourselves in those shoes. Jeremiah continues, I like the issue with the stranger and all the fantastical, nonsensical stuff that happened, just because that I felt like that was Kirby's influence more than anything that Stan did. I also agree with you that the Sentinel story was pretty weak. Things felt shoehorned and contrived. It was missing some of the normal drama these stories typically have. And yeah, I mean, we go from the two-part Juggernaut story to a three-part Sentinel story, and... It definitely didn't need, and it's weird to say about a Silver Age book, but it didn't need three parts, and it was just, it was very contrived, very shoehorned, and of course we could probably lampshade that by saying, you know, hey, it's the Silver Age, but that doesn't necessarily make it any more engaging or fun to read. Uh, Jeremiah continues, I think my favorite episode, though, was the one where you covered Fantastic Four Annual number 3. Or was it number four, Stan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never seen this book, never read a reprint, but I'm well aware of its significance. In my mind, I equate it with showcase number 100 as being an achievement in the Silver Age just by bringing all the characters together. And yes, I, I totally agree. That was, uh, that was one of the more fun episodes that I've ever put together uh, for the uh, for the project. And it's funny when I think that I almost didn't do it. I, I figured I was just going to mention it. You know, the X-Men appeared in this Fantastic Four annual, and uh, I really wasn't even planning on reading it for the show so I can make, you know, actual points about it. So I'm glad that I did, and I'm glad that uh, we did the episode on it because it was uh, it was a blast, and a lot of people seemed to enjoy it. So that's, uh, that's super cool. Jeremiah continues, I'd finally like to mention that I enjoy the mailbag you still present, and I wanted to say that I still like being a part of this conversation and group that you facilitated between the show and the Facebook group. Well, I tell you what, I'm so happy that you're a part of the group And it's interesting to, to to compare The Essentials to regular X-Lapsed In that there's some crossover between listenership But there is definitely a group that only listens to the Silver Age stuff And there's a group that doesn't listen to the Silver Age stuff So it's interesting to get this, this mix, you know, and... Uh, being able to have uh, discussions and conversations about both eras, sometimes mixing the eras, it's, it's been an absolute blast. So it's uh, a lot of fun, and it really means a lot to me that there are folks who are uh, in the group and willing to, uh, to discuss this stuff. Jeremiah closes out with, I think that's enough of my going on and on. Keep up the great work. But he does include a PS. I have bought and read X-Men Volume 6, 1, and 2, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the regular X-Lab show. One of these days, I will get caught up on the dawn of X-Trades and podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Jeremiah. This was a, such a cool message to get. Um, I couldn't imagine listening to that many episodes of of my voice on a trip across a, a few states. That's uh, really, really cool, and it means it means so much to me. So thank you. And I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on uh, the brand new Volume 6 of X-Men here, because it's uh, so far a pretty fun read. It's um a little bit different from Volume 5, but has enough similarities with it that it still feels part of the same era. You know, it feels like an evolution of the era a bit. So I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts. Uh, that's going to do it for our mailbag. If anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag or just get a hold of me for any old reason, feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to history at gmail.com. You can leave a message at the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can visit chrissoninfiniteearths.com for blog posts and show notes, and hopefully there'll be a redesign sometime soon. It might, I might be moving things from Blogspot to WordPress. A lot of things that give me agita, you know, because I am terrified that I'm going to lose all my stuff. But uh, we're we're going to take baby steps toward making that site look a little bit less... Awful, you know (laughs) A little bit easier to navigate Uh, You could also join us on Facebook Our little group is 90's X-Men And for all the Chris and Reggie radio archives You can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com And of course that's available everywhere The internet aggregates noise But that's going to do it for today I would like to thank you all so much For sharing your time with me And until next time, as always I'll talk to you again real soon See ya!